This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Veil of Lost Women by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Todd McLaren for Tantor Media's The Coming of Conan the Sumerian. It runs 45 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Veil of Lost Women The thunder of the drums and the great elephant tusk horns was deafening. But in Livia's ears the clamor seemed but a confused muttering, dull and far away. As she lay on the Angareb in the great hut, her state bordered between delirium and semi-unconsciousness. Outward sounds and movements scarcely impinged upon her senses. Her whole mental vision, though dazed and chaotic, was yet centered with hideous certitude on the naked, writhing figure of her brother, blood streaming down the quivering thighs. Against a dim nightmare background of dusky, interweaving shapes and shadows, that white form was limbed in merciless and awful clarity. The air seemed still to pulsate with an agonized screaming, mingled and interwoven obscenely with a rustle of fiendish laughter. She was not conscious of sensation as an individual, separate and distinct from the rest of the cosmos. She was drowned in a great gulf of pain, was herself but pain crystallized and manifested in flesh, so she lay without conscious thought or motion, while outside the drums bellowed, the horns clamored, and barbaric voices lifted hideous chants, keeping time to naked feet slapping the hard earth and open palms smiting one another softly. But through her frozen mentality, individual consciousness at last began slowly to seep. A dull wonder that she was still bodily unharmed first made itself manifest. She accepted the miracle without thanksgiving. The matter seemed meaningless. Acting mechanically, she sat up on the Angareb and stared dully about her. Her extremities made feeble beginnings of motions, as if responding to blindly awakening nerve centers. Her naked feet scuffled nervously at the hard, beaten dirt floor. Her fingers twitched convulsively at the skirt of the scanty undertunic which constituted her only garment. Impersonally, she remembered that once, it seemed long, long ago, rude hands had torn her other garments from her body, and she had wept with fright and shame. It seemed strange now that so small a wrong should have caused her so much woe. The magnitude of outrage and indignity was only relative, after all like everything else. The hut door opened, and a black woman entered, a lithe, pantherish creature whose supple body gleamed like polished ebony, adorned only by a wisp of silk twisted about her strutting loins. The whites of her eyeballs reflected the firelight outside as she rolled them with wicked meaning. She bore a bamboo dish of food, smoking meat, roasted yams, mealies, unwieldy ingots of native bread, and a vessel of hammered gold filled with Urati beer. These she set down on the Angareb, but Livia paid no heed. She sat staring dully at the opposite wall, hung with mats woven of bamboo shoots, 
The young black woman laughed evilly, with a flash of dark eyes and white teeth, and, with a hiss of spiteful obscenity and a mocking caress that was more gross than her language, she turned and swaggered out of the hut, expressing more taunting insolence with the motions of her hips than any civilized woman could with spoken insults. Neither the wench's words nor her actions had stirred the surface of Livia's consciousness. All her sensations were still turned inward. Still, the vividness of her mental pictures made the visible world seem like an unreal panorama of ghosts and shadows. Mechanically, she ate the food and drank the liquor without tasting either. It was still mechanically that at last she rose and walked unsteadily across the hut to peer out through a crack between the bamboos. It was an abrupt change in the timber of the drums and horns that reacted upon some obscure part of her mind and made her seek the cause, without sensible volition. At first she could make out nothing of what she saw. All was chaotic and shadowy, shapes moving and mingling, writhing and twisting, black formless blocks hewed out starkly against a setting of blood red that dulled and glowed. Then, Actions and objects assumed their proper proportions, and she made out men and women moving about the fires. The red light glinted on silver and ivory ornaments. White plumes nodded against the glare. Naked black figures strutted and posed, silhouettes carved out of darkness and limbed in crimson. On an ivory stool, flanked by giants in plumed headpieces and leopard-skin girdles, sat a fat, squat shape, abysmal, repulsive, a toad-like chunk of blackness reeking of the dank, rotting jungle and the nighted swamps. The creature's pudgy hands rested on the sleek arch of his belly. His nape was a roll of sooty fat that seemed to thrust his bullet head forward. His eyes gleamed in the firelight like live coals on a dead black stump. Their appalling vitality belied the inert suggestion of the gross body. As the girl's gaze rested on that repellent figure, her body stiffened and tensed as frantic life surged through her again. From a mindless automaton, she changed suddenly to a sentient mold of live, quivering flesh, stinging and burning. Pain was drowned in hate, so intense it in turn became pain. She felt hard and brittle, as if her body were turning to steel. She felt her hate flow almost tangibly out along the line of her vision. So it seemed to her that the object of her emotion should fall dead from his carven stool because of its force. But if Bajuj, king of Bakala, felt any psychic discomfort because of the concentration of his captive, he did not show it. He continued to cram his frog-like mouth to capacity with handfuls of mealies scooped up from a vessel held up to him by a kneeling woman, and to stare down a broad lane which was being formed by the action of his subjects in pressing back on either hand. Down this lane, walled with sweaty black humanity, Livia vaguely realized some important personage would come, judging from the strident clamor of drum and horn. And as she watched, one came. A column of fighting men, marching three abreast, advanced toward the ivory stool. 
a thick line of waving plumes and glinting spears meandering through the motley crowd. At the head of the ebon spearman strode a figure at the sight of which Livia started violently. Her heart seemed to stop, then began to pound again, suffocatingly. Against that dusky background, this man stood out with vivid distinctness. He was clad like his followers in leopard-skin loincloth and plumed headpiece. But he was a white man. It was not in the manner of a suppliant or a subordinate that he strode up to the ivory stool, and sudden silence fell over the throng as he halted before the squatting figure. Livia felt the tenseness, though she only dimly knew what it pretended. For a moment, Bajouge sat, craning his short neck upward like a great frog. Then, as if pulled against his will by the other's steady glare, he shambled up off his stool and stood grotesquely bobbing his shaven head. Instantly the tension was broken. A tremendous shout went up from the massed villagers, and at a gesture from the stranger his warriors lifted their spears and boomed a salute royal for King Bajouge. Whoever he was, Livia knew the man must indeed be powerful in that wild land, if Bajouge of Bacala rose to greet him. And power meant military prestige. Violence was the only thing respected by those ferocious races. Thereafter, Livia stood with her eyes glued to the crack in the hut wall, watching the white stranger. His warriors mingled with the Bacalas, dancing, feasting, swigging beer. He himself, with a few of his chiefs, sat with Bajouge and the head men of Bacala, cross-legged on mats, gorging and guzzling. She saw his hands dipped deep into the cooking pots with the others, saw his muzzle thrust into the beer vessel out of which Bajouge also drank, but she noticed, nevertheless, that he was accorded the respect due a king. Since he had no stool, Bajouge renounced his also and sat on the mats with his guest. When a new pot of beer was brought, the king of Bacala barely sipped it before he passed it to the white man. Power! All this ceremonial courtesy pointed to power, strength, prestige. Livia trembled in excitement as a breathless plan began to form in her mind. So she watched the white man with painful intensity, noting every detail of his appearance. He was tall. Neither in height nor in massiveness was he exceeded by many of the giant blacks. He moved with the lithe suppleness of a great panther. When the firelight caught his eyes, they burned like blue fire. High-strapped sandals guarded his feet, and from his broad girdle hung a sword in a leather scabbard. His appearance was alien and unfamiliar. Livia had never seen his like but she made no effort to classify his position among the races of mankind. It was enough that his skin was white. The hours passed, and gradually the roar of revelry lessened, as men and women sank into drunken sleep. At last, Bajouge rose tottering and lifted his hands, less a sign to end the feast than a token of surrender in the contest of gorging and guzzling, and stumbling was caught by his warriors, who bore him to his hut. The white man rose, apparently none the worse for the incredible amount of beer he had quaffed, 
and was escorted to the guest hut by such of the Bacala headmen as were able to reel along. He disappeared into the hut, and Livia noticed that a dozen of his own spearmen took their places about the structure, spears ready. Evidently the stranger was taking no chances on Bajuju's friendship. Livia cast her glance about the village, which faintly resembled a dusky night of judgment, what with the straggling streets strewn with drunken shapes. She knew that men in full possession of their faculties guarded the outer boma, but the only wakeful men she saw inside the village were the spearmen about the white man's hut, and some of these were beginning to nod and lean on their spears. With her heart beating hammer-like, she glided to the back of her prison hut and out the door, passing the snoring guard Bajuj had set over her. Like an ivory shadow, she glided across the space between her hut and that occupied by the stranger. On her hands and knees she crawled up to the back of that hut. A black giant squatted here, his plumed head sunk on his knees. She wriggled past him to the wall of the hut. She had first been imprisoned in that hut, and a narrow aperture in the wall, hidden inside by a hanging mat, represented her weak and pathetic attempt at escape. She found the opening, turned sidewise and wriggled her lithe body through, thrusting the inner mat aside. Firelight from without faintly illuminated the interior of the hut. Even as she thrust back the mat, she heard a muttered curse, felt a vice-like grasp in her hair, and was dragged bodily through the aperture and plumped down on her feet. Staggering with the suddenness of it, she gathered her scattered wits together and raked her disordered tresses out of her eyes, to stare up into the face of the white man who towered over her, amazement written on his dark, scarred face. His sword was naked in his hand, and his eyes blazed like balefire, whether with anger, suspicion, or surprise she could not judge. He spoke in a language she could not understand, a tongue which was not a negro guttural, yet did not have a civilized sound. Oh, please! she begged. Not so loud. They will hear. Who are you? he demanded, speaking Ophirian with a barbarous accent. By Crom, I never thought to find a white girl in this hellish land. My name is Livia, she answered. I am Bajuja's captive. Oh, listen, please listen to me. I cannot stay here long. I must return before they miss me from my hut. My brother? A sob choked her. Then she continued, My brother was Thetheles, and we were of the house of Chelkas, scientists and noblemen of Ophir. By special permission of the king of Stygia, my brother was allowed to go to Keshata, the city of magicians, to study their arts, and I accompanied him. He was only a boy, younger than myself. Her voice faltered and broke. The stranger said nothing but stood watching her with burning eyes, his face frowning and unreadable. There was something wild and untamable about him that frightened her and made her nervous and uncertain. The black Kushites raided Keshata, she continued hurriedly. We were approaching the city in a camel caravan. Our guards fled and the raiders carried us away with them. But they did us no harm and let us know that they would parley with the Stygians and accept a ransom for our return. But one of the chiefs desired all the ransom for himself. 
and he and his followers stole us out of the camp one night, and fled far to the southeast with us, to the very borders of Cush. There they were attacked and cut down by a band of Bacala raiders. Thetelis and I were dragged into this den of beasts. She sobbed convulsively. This morning my brother was mutilated and butchered before me. She gagged and went momentarily blind at the memory. They fed his body to the jackals. How long I lay in a faint I do not know. Words failing her, she lifted her eyes to the scowling face of the stranger. A mad fury swept over her. She lifted her fists and beat futilely on his mighty breast, which he heeded no more than the buzzing of a fly. How can you stand there like a dumb brute? she screamed in a ghastly whisper. Are you but a beast like these others? Ah, Mitra, once I thought there was honor in men. Now I know each has his price. You, what do you know of honor, or of mercy, or decency? You are a barbarian like these others. Only your skin is white. Your soul is black as theirs. You care not that a man of your own color has been foully done to death by these black dogs, that a white woman is their slave. Very well. She fell back from him, panting, transfigured by her passion. I will give you a price, she raved, tearing away her tunic from her ivory breasts. Am I not fair? Am I not more desirable than these soot-colored wenches? Am I not a worthy reward for bloodletting? Is not a fair-skinned virgin a price worth slaying for? Kill that black dog, Bajuj. Let me see his cursed head roll in the bloody dust. Kill him! Kill him! She beat her clenched fists together in the agony of her intensity. Then take me and do as you wish with me. I will be your slave. He did not speak for an instant, but stood like a giant brooding figure of slaughter and destruction, fingering his hilt. You speak as if you were free to give yourself at your pleasure, he said, as if the gift of your body had power to swing kingdoms. Why should I kill Bajuj to obtain you? Women are cheap as plantains in this land, and their willingness or unwillingness matters as little. You value yourself too highly. If I wanted you, I wouldn't have to fight Bajuj to take you. He would rather give you to me than to fight me. Livia gasped. All the fire went out of her. The hut reeled dizzily before her eyes. She staggered and sank in a crumpled heap on an angareb. Dazed bitterness crushed her soul as the realization of her utter helplessness was thrust brutally upon her. The human mind clings unconsciously to familiar values and ideas, even among surroundings and conditions alien and unrelated to those environs to which such values and ideas are adapted. In spite of all Livia had experienced— she had still instinctively supposed a woman's consent the pivotal point of such a game as she proposed to play. She was stunned by the realization that nothing hinged upon her at all. She could not move men as pawns in a game. She herself was the helpless pawn. 
I see the absurdity of supposing that any man in this corner of the world would act according to rules and customs existent in another corner of the planet, she murmured weakly, scarcely conscious of what she was saying, which was indeed only the vocal framing of the thought which overcame her. Stunned by that newest twist of fate, she lay motionless, until the white barbarian's iron fingers closed on her shoulders and lifted her again to her feet. You said I was a barbarian, he said harshly, and that is true. Crom be thanked. If you had had men of the Outlands guarding you instead of soft-gutted civilized weaklings, you would not be the slave of a black pig this night. I am Conan, a Cimmerian, and I live by the sword's edge. But I am not such a dog as to leave a white woman in the clutches of a black man. And though your kind call me a robber, I never forced a woman against her consent. Customs differ in various countries, but if a man is strong enough, he can enforce a few of his native customs anywhere. And no man ever called me a weakling. If you are old and ugly as the devil's pet vulture, I'd take you away from Bajuj, simply because of the color of your hide. But you are young and beautiful, and I have looked at black sluts until I am sick at the guts. I'll play this game your way, simply because some of your instincts correspond with some of mine. Get back to your hut. Bajuj is too drunk to come to you tonight and I'll see that he's occupied tomorrow. And tomorrow night it will be Conan's bed you'll warm, not Bajuja's. How will it be accomplished? She was trembling with mingled emotions. Are these all your warriors? They're enough, he grunted. Bamulas, every one of them, and suckled at the teats of war. I came here at Bajuja's request. He wants me to join him in an attack on Jihiji. Tonight we feasted. Tomorrow we hold council. When I get through with him, he'll be holding council in hell. You will break the truce? Truces in this land are made to be broken, he answered grimly. He would break his truce with Jihiji. And after we'd looted the town together, he'd wipe me out the first time he caught me off guard. What would be blackest treachery in another land is wisdom here. I have not fought my way alone to the position of war chief of the Bamulas without learning all the lessons the black country teaches. Now, go back to your hut and sleep, knowing that it is not for Bajuja, but for Conan that you preserve your beauty. 2. Through the crack in the bamboo wall, Livia watched, her nerves taut and trembling. All day, since their late waking, bleary and sodden from their debauch of the night before, the black people had prepared the feast for the coming night. All day, Conan the Cimmerian had sat in the hut of Bajuj, and what had passed between them Livia could not know. She had fought to hide her excitement from the only person who entered her hut, the vindictive black girl who brought her food and drink. But that ribald wench had been too groggy from her libations of the previous night to notice the change in her captive's demeanor. Now, night had fallen again, 
Fires lighted the village, and once more the chiefs left the king's hut and squatted down in the open space between the huts to feast and hold a final ceremonious council. This time there was not so much beer guzzling. Livia noticed the Bamulas casually converging toward the circle where sat the chief men. She saw Bajuj, and sitting opposite him across the eating pots, Conan, laughing and conversing with the giant Aja, Bajuj's war chief. The Cimmerian was gnawing a great beef bone, and as she watched, she saw him cast a glance across his shoulder. As if it were a signal for which they had been waiting, the Bamulas all turned their gaze toward their chief. Conan rose, still smiling, as if to reach into a nearby cooking pot. Then, quick as a cat, he struck Aja a terrible blow with a heavy bone. The Bakala war chief slumped over, his skull crushed in, and instantly a frightful yell rent the skies as the Bamulas went into action like blood-mad panthers. Cooking pots overturned, scalding the squatting women. Bamboo walls buckled to the impact of plunging bodies. Screams of agony ripped the night, and over all rose the exultant Tee-yee-yee -yee! of the maddened Bamulas, the flame of spears that crimsoned in the lurid glow. Bakala was a madhouse that reddened into a shambles. The action of the invaders paralyzed the luckless villagers by its unexpected suddenness. No thought of attack by their guests had ever entered their woolly pates. Most of the spears were stacked in the huts, many of the warriors already half-drunk. The fall of Aja was a signal that plunged the gleaming blades of the Bamulis into a hundred unsuspecting bodies. After that, it was a massacre. At her peephole, Livia stood frozen, white as a statue, her golden locks drawn back and grasped in a knotted cluster with both hands at her temples. Her eyes were dilated, her whole body rigid. The yells of pain and fury smote her tortured nerves like a physical impact. The writhing, slashing forms blurred before her, then sprang out again with horrifying distinctness. She saw spears sink into writhing black bodies, spilling red. She saw clubs swing and descend with brutal force on kinky heads. Brands were kicked out of the fires, scattering sparks. Hot thatches smoldered and blazed up. A fresh stridency of anguish cut through the cries as living victims were hurled head first into the blazing structures. The scent of scorched flesh began to sicken the air, already rank with reeking sweat and fresh blood. Livia's overwrought nerves gave way. She cried out again and again, shrill screams of torrent lost in the roar of flames and slaughter. She beat her temples with her clenched fists. Her reason tottered, changing her cries to more awful peals of hysterical laughter. In vain she sought to keep before her the fact that it was her enemies who were dying thus horribly, that this was as she had madly hoped and plotted, that this ghastly sacrifice was but a just repayment for the wrongs done her and hers. Frantic terror held her in its unreasoning grasp. She was aware of no pity for the victims who were dying wholesale under the dripping spears. Her only emotion was blind, stark, mad, unreasoning fear. She saw Conan, his white form contrasting with the blacks. 
she saw his sword flash and men went down around him. Now a struggling knot swept around a fire, and she glimpsed a fat, squat shape writhing in its midst. Conan plowed through and was hidden from view by the twisting black figures. From the midst, a thin squealing rose unbearably. The press split for an instant, and she had one awful glimpse of a reeling, desperate squat figure, streaming blood. Then the throng crowded in again, and steel flashed in the mob like a beam of lightning through the dusk. A beast-like baying rose, terrifying in its primitive exultation. Through the mob, Conan's tall form pushed its way. He was striding toward the hut where the girl cowered, and in his hand he bore a ghastly relic. The firelight gleamed redly on King Bajuja's severed head. The black eyes, glassy now instead of vital, rolled up, revealing only the whites. The jaw hung slack as if in a grin of idiocy. Red drops showered thickly along the ground. Livia gave back with a moaning cry. Conan had paid the price and was coming to claim her, bearing the awful token of his payment. He would grasp her with his hot, bloody fingers, crush her lips with mouth still panting from the slaughter. With the thought came delirium. With a scream, Livia ran across the hut, threw herself against the door in the back wall. It fell open and she darted across the open space, a flitting white ghost in a realm of black shadows and red flame. Some obscure instinct led her to the pen where the horses were kept. A warrior was just taking down the bars that separated the horse pen from the main boma, and he yelled in amazement as she darted past him. His dusky hand clutched at her, closed on the neck of her tunic. With a frantic jerk she tore away, leaving the garment in his hand. The horses snorted and stampeded past her, rolling the black man in the dust. Lean, wiry steeds of the Kushite breed, already frantic with the fire and the scent of blood. Blindly she caught at a flying mane, was jerked off her feet, struck the ground again on her toes, sprang high, pulled, and scrambled herself upon the horses straining back. Mad with fear, the herd plunged through the fires, their small hoofs knocking sparks in a blinding shower. The startled black people had a wild glimpse of the girl clinging naked to the mane of a beast that raced like the wind that streamed out of his rider's loose yellow hair. Then, straight for the boma the steed bolted, soared breathtakingly into the air, and was gone into the night. 3. Livia could make no attempt to guide her steed, nor did she feel any need of so doing. The yells and the glow of the fires were fading out behind her. The wind tossed her hair and caressed her naked limbs. She was aware only of a dazed need to hold to the flowing mane and ride, ride, ride over the rim of the world and away from all agony and grief and horror. And for hours the wiry steed raced, until, topping a starlit crest, he stumbled and hurled his rider headlong. She struck on soft cushioning sward and lay for an instant half-stunned, dimly hearing her mount trot away. When she staggered up, the first thing that impressed her was the silence. It was an almost tangible thing, soft 
darkly velvet. After the incessant blare of barbaric horns and drums which had maddened her for days, she stared up at the great white stars clustered thickly in the dark blue sky. There was no moon, yet the starlight illuminated the land, though invisibly, with unexpected clusterings of shadow. She stood on a swarded eminence from which the gently molded slopes ran away, soft as velvet under the starlight. Far away in one direction, she discerned a dense, dark line of trees which marked the distant forest. Here there was only night and trance-like stillness, and a faint breeze blowing through the stars. The land seemed vast and slumbering. The warm caress of the breeze made her aware of her nakedness, and she wriggled uneasily, spreading her hands over her body. Then she felt the loneliness of the night and the unbrokenness of the solitude. She was alone. She stood naked on the summit of the land, and there was none to see. Nothing but night and the whispering wind. She was suddenly glad of the night and the loneliness. There was none to threaten her or to seize her with rude, violent hands. She looked before her and saw the slope falling away into a broad valley. There, fronds waved thickly and the starlight reflected whitely on many small objects scattered throughout the veil. She thought they were great white blossoms and the thought gave rise to vague memory. She thought of a valley of which the blacks had spoken with fear, a valley to which had fled the young women of a strange brown-skinned race which had inhabited the land before the coming of the ancestors of the Bacallas. There, men said, they had turned into white flowers, had been transformed by the old gods to escape their ravishers, where no black man dared go. But into that valley Livia dared go. She would go down those grassy slopes, which were like velvet under her tender feet. She would dwell there among the nodding white blossoms, and no man would ever come to lay hot, rude hands on her. Conan had said that pacts were made to be broken. She would break her pact with him. She would go into the veil of the lost women. She would lose herself in solitude and stillness. Even as these dreamy and disjointed thoughts floated through her consciousness, she was descending the gentle slopes, and the tears of the valley walls were rising higher on each hand. But so gentle were their slopes that when she stood on the valley floor she did not have the feeling of being imprisoned by rugged walls. All about her floated seas of shadow, and great white blossoms nodded and whispered to her. She wandered at random, parting the fronds before her with her small hands, listening to the whisper of the wind through the leaves, finding a childish pleasure in the gurgling of an unseen stream. She moved as in a dream, in the grasp of a strange unreality. One thought reiterated itself continually. There she was safe from the brutality of men. She wept, but the tears were of joy. She lay full length upon the sward and clutched the soft grass as if she would crush her newfound refuge to her breast and hold it there forever. She plucked the petals of the great white blossoms and fashioned them into a chaplet for her golden hair. Their perfume was in keeping with all other things in the valley, dreamy, 
subtle, enchanting. So she came at last to a glade in the midst of the valley, and saw there a great stone, hewn as if by human hands, and adorned with ferns and blossoms and chains of flowers. She stood staring at it, and then there was movement and life about her. Turning, she saw figures stealing from the denser shadows, slender brown women, lithe, naked, with blossoms in their night-black hair. Like creatures of a dream they came about her, and they did not speak. But suddenly terror seized her as she looked into their eyes. Those eyes were luminous, radiant in the starshine, but they were not human eyes. The forms were human, but in the souls a strange change had been wrought, a change reflected in their glowing eyes. Fear descended on Livia in a wave. The serpent reared its grisly head in her new-found paradise. But she could not flee. The lithe brown women were all about her. One, lovelier than the rest, came silently up to the trembling girl and enfolded her with supple brown arms. Her breath was scented with the same perfume that stole from the great white blossoms that waved in the starshine. Her lips pressed Livia's in a long, terrible kiss. The Ophirian felt coldness running through her veins. Her limbs turned brittle. Like a white statue of marble she lay in the arms of her captress, incapable of speech or movement. Quick, soft hands lifted her and laid her on the altar stone amidst a bed of flowers. The brown women joined hands in a ring and moved supplely about the altar, dancing a strange, dark measure. Never the sun or the moon looked on such a dance, and the great white stars grew whiter and glowed with a more luminous light, as if its dark witchery struck response in things cosmic and elemental. And a low chant arose that was less human than the gurgling of the distant stream. A rustle of voices like the whispering of the great white blossoms that waved beneath the stars. Livia lay, conscious but without power of movement. It did not occur to her to doubt her sanity. She sought not to reason or analyze. She was, and these strange beings dancing around her were. A dumb realization of existence and recognition of the actuality of nightmare possessed her, as she lay helplessly gazing up at the star-clustered sky, whence she somehow knew with more than mortal knowledge some thing would come to her, as it had come long ago to make these naked brown women the soulless beings they now were. First, high above her, she saw a black dot among the stars, which grew and expanded. It neared her. It swelled to a bat, and still it grew, though its shape did not alter further to any great extent. It hovered over her in the stars, dropping plummet-like earthward, its great wings spread over her. She lay in its tenebrous shadow, and all about her the chant rose higher, to a soft paean of soulless joy, a welcome to the god which came to claim a fresh sacrifice, fresh and rose-pink as a flower in the dew of dawn. Now it hung directly over her, and her soul shriveled and grew chill and small at the sight. 
Its wings were bat-like, but its body and the dim face that gazed down upon her were like nothing of sea or earth or air. She knew she looked upon ultimate horror, upon black cosmic foulness born in night-black gulfs beyond the reach of a madman's wildest dreams. Breaking the unseen bonds that held her dumb, she screamed awfully. Her cry was answered by a deep, menacing shout. She heard the pounding of rushing feet. All about her there was a swirl as of swift waters. The white blossoms tossed wildly, and the brown women were gone. Over her hovered the great black shadow, and she saw a tall white figure with plumes nodding in the stars rushing toward her. Conan! The cry broke involuntarily from her lips. With a fierce, inarticulate yell, the barbarian sprang into the air, lashing upward with his sword that flamed in the starlight. The great black wings rose and fell. Livia, dumb with horror, saw the Cimmerian enveloped in the black shadow that hung over him. The man's breath came pantingly, his feet stamped the beaten earth, crushing the white blossoms into the dirt. The rending impact of his blows echoed through the night. He was hurled back and forth like a rat in the grip of a hound. Blood splashed thickly on the sward, mingling with the white petals that lay strewn like a carpet. And then the girl, watching that devilish battle as in a nightmare, saw the black-winged thing waver and stagger in midair. There was a threshing beat of crippled wings, and the monster had torn clear and was soaring upward to mingle and vanish among the stars. Its conqueror staggered dizzily, sword poised, legs wide-braced, staring upward stupidly, amazed at victory, but ready to take up again the ghastly battle. An instant later Conan approached the altar, panting, dripping blood at every step. His massive chest heaved, glistening with perspiration. Blood ran down his arms in streams from his neck and shoulders. As he touched her, the spell on the girl was broken, and she scrambled up and slid from the altar, recoiling from his hand. He leaned against the stone, looking down at her, where she cowered at his feet. Men saw you ride out of the village, he said. I followed as soon as I could, and picked up your track, though it was no easy task following it by torchlight. I tracked you to the place where your horse threw you, and though the torches were exhausted by then, and I could not find the prints of your bare feet on the sward, I felt sure you had descended into the valley. My men would not follow me, so I came alone on foot. What veil of devils is this? What was that thing? A god, she whispered. The black people spoke of it. A god from far away and long ago. A devil from the outer dark, he grunted. Oh, they're nothing uncommon. They lurk as thick as fleas outside the belt of light which surrounds this world. I have heard the wise men of Zamora talk of them. Some find their way to earth. But when they do, they have to take on earthly form and flesh of some sort. A man like myself with a sword is a match for any amount of fangs and talons, infernal or terrestrial. Come, my men await me beyond the ridge of the valley. 
She crouched motionless, unable to find words, while he frowned down at her. Then she spoke. I ran away from you. I planned to dupe you. I was not going to keep my promise to you. I was yours by the bargain we made, but I would have escaped from you if I could. Punish me as you will. He shook the sweat and blood from his locks and sheathed his sword. Get up, he grunted. It was a foul bargain I made. I do not regret that black dog Bajouge, but you are no wench to be bought and sold. The ways of men vary in different lands, but a man need not be a swine wherever he is. After I thought a while, I saw that to hold you to your bargain would be the same as if I had forced you. Besides, you are not tough enough for this land. You are a child of cities and books and civilized ways. Which isn't your fault, but you die quickly following the life I thrive on. A dead woman would be no good to me. I will take you to the Stygian borders. The Stygians will send you home to Ophir. She stared up at him as if she had not heard aright. Home? She repeated mechanically. Home? Ophir? My people? Cities? Towers? Peace? My home? Suddenly, tears welled into her eyes, and sinking to her knees, she embraced his knees in her arms. Crom, girl, grunted Conan, embarrassed. Don't do that. You'd think I was doing you a favor by kicking you out of this country. Haven't I explained that you're not the proper woman for the war chief of the Bamulas? Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, I'm Mark Finn. And we're going to talk about The Veil of Lost Women, a notoriously bad story by Robert E. Howard, uh, first published in the Magazine of Horror, Spring 1967. Uh, I tried to find any positive reviews anywhere on the internet or anywhere <laughs> uh, for this story, and the best I could come up with was... Well, it's got some okay stuff in it. It's it, Yeah, on top of all the things we hate about it. But everybody seems to think this is the worst Conan story. Mark, I, I, you're yes, the expert. I would, abs I would absolutely uh, consider this uh, his critical uh, nadir, uh, if, we're, if we're talking in terms of Conan. Yeah, and complete uh, stories as well, I guess, rather than... You you're know, right. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's sort of important to remember that Howard wrote... Uh, 300 plus um, full stories and and many of these quote-unquote short stories are 20 30 40,000 words you know they would have been novellas and novelettes you know mm -hmm. he's got he's got a couple of 50 and 60,000 word jobs in there um, of the 300 okay and, and not counting the 700 plus poems we're to, we're literally talking about twenty three Conan stories, mm -hmm. so so not even one tenth of his total output. <laughs> so I think that's important to to, mm -hmm. to remember. Yeah, uh, it's not his worst story. It's just his worst no, Conan story. Right? It's his it's his worst exactly. It's his worst Conan story. And and uh, I think for a guy who wrote that much in twelve years, he's allowed a clunker or two. 
I don't think it is a clunker, though. I, I, I don't understand why everybody sort of poops on it all the time. I, I, there are some things that I think are worth pooping on in it. But I, Sir, I think it's really interesting. And that's uh, why I want to do a show on it. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because even though it is um, uh, it, it has some really um, racially objectionable material in it. Uh, I, I think there's certainly um, a case to be made for being the kind of thing that Howard wrote and the way that he wrote it. Uh, and that's very much worth talking about, even if sometimes that subject matter turns uncomfortable. Uh, so Yeah, uh, so I guess we need to get that, that the, the shit out of the way. Um, uh, in, in order to clear a path to the, the good stuff. Um, but I, I read this very closely with a pair of my students um, over a couple of weeks because it's, um, it's got a lot of high vocab for uh, you know modern kids. and So it takes some time to get through. And, and reading it slowly, uh, you could really get a good close-up look at some of the disgusting, uh, you know, sort of ideas that are floating around in it and um so there's that but rereading it uh again for our show today um i got past those a lot faster the you know and um so is it here's a question is it more sexist than it is racist no i think it's more racist really but yeah maybe maybe that's just my you know what i'm used to you know, in in fiction, because uh, maybe I've seen so much sexism that it goes right over my head now. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I yeah. Uh, for, for this sort of world, I mean, a world where which is male dominated, point of a sword, uh, end of end of a spell. I mean, I take sexism unfortunately as a given for the setting up hypo. Hyboria. Mm. However, the the racism, however, is really egregious and really, really feels clunky and off kilter. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The poor poor Livia doesn't do well, and women are chattel here. But yeah, but the the egregious uh, egregious uh, way they describe the uh, the local tribes is just like, ugh, I didn't like that. I wanted to get that. Past, I I was very much happier when we got past when she when she made her escape and mm-hmm. then that we could have the battle against the Lovecraftian creature. That was a much much more pleasant section of the story for me than the first half. I I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I want to point out that this is the striking thing to me um, in the comic book adaptation. The the that Lovecraftian creature battle takes three pages um, mm. of the comic book, which is I don't know thirty two pages or something like that. Um, here it takes one, two, uh, three paragraphs. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah. I, I was thinking maybe that's why people hate it so much is is that the awesome battle that they want to see is sort of subverted by the so the very long um, uh, what do we want to call that uh, extermination that happens at the beginning. Well, let's let's call it slaughter. Yeah, or, it's definitely uh, a slaughter. Uh, and, and, I think and he we calls can, it a slaughter. He calls it a slaughter, and um, there's 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 some context here that I want to that I want to bring into the discussion. Uh, 
Patrice Luanet very astutely noted uh, because this lines up with uh, some of his letters to Derleth um, that this story uh, shares a framework with an actual historical incident that mm-hmm. happened in Texas, and that is the abduction of Cynthia Parker uh, by uh, Indians. Uh, as and and so that's a and and in fact uh, Howard's uh, recounting of the tale uh, to um, Derleth is gripping. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> It's an epic eight-page stuff where he did not let the facts get in the way of the story, and um, and and this this type this story has been the, the Cynthia Ann Parker story and the uh, as it deals with Quana Parker also is a very famous uh, piece of Texas history uh, that got co-opted for John Wayne's The Searchers, mm. uh, so. So if you so what Howard tried to do here because he he had already been talking Lovecraft had been pushing him you, know, you need to be writing more about the Southwest you need to be writing more about your area mm-hmm. and so Howard was 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 working along those lines but Howard never went straight into something his he what he always tried to do was sort of um, uh, what uh, what Jeff Shanks calls hybridization where he would take. Uh, one genre and kind of merge it with another genre. <laughs> so the first, for example, the first Breckenridge Elkin story is also a boxing story. He's doing these funny cowboy stories, but he, he knows how to write a funny boxing story. So we're going to put those together to kind of get me over the hump. Um, same thing, you know, same thing with his weird Western horror from the mound. Um, so, so this is one of those stories where, uh, the 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 Kushite natives are actually Comanche Indians with the serial numbers filed mm-hmm. off. Now he does this much better in the later Conan story, Beyond the Black River, uh, which is also based on Texas history and the relationship between the settlers and the Native Americans. Yeah. Um, but this, but 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 this story. Uh, is very much that uh, that that endeavor. Uh, Parker was abducted, uh, and 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 the the tribe was was found. There was a, a bloody battle. I mean, these things all sort of happened. Uh, he he conans it up though, and um, has uh, in the end, you know, Conan. Um, uh, is now the chief of the tribe because he's he's killed the chief, <laughs> you know, and so that's where you get that kind of line at the end. <laughs> Didn't I tell you that you know you were too good for the chief of the tribe? You know, that's him basically uh, uh, trying to make light of the fact that uh, he, he, he literally uh, did an ethnic cleansing just there, yep. uh, like a, like the Texas Rangers did to the Native Americans in Texas. Uh, in the 1880s. It's been a while since I so, saw the Searchers. Isn't isn't John Wayne's uh, character super racist in that as well? Yes. Uh, yeah, he, he is. Uh, yeah, well, and singular, well, and single-minded as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 not without uh, a ba- uh, it's not without a reason, but but it's his hatred that's unreasoning. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 
So that's sort of the uh, deal. And and this is this is another thing that the Conan stories all have in common. Um, all of the characters are based on um, historical uh, antecedents um, uh, rather than precedents. You know, his, his idea of that of the Hyborian Age was let's crank history backward fourteen thousand years and turn this into the time of myth and legend. So when so when when Vindia becomes India, we have a basis for um you know who their gods were and and what this was. And so, you know, his his world was old when it was happening. So all of this none of this stuff is supposed to matter. Had had this been in had, had this been in Stygia rather than Kush, you know, they they would have been uh, they would have been Stygian dogs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, mm-hmm. every, every everyone that Conan doesn't like is a is a is a you know insert color of skin dog, you know. Yeah. So 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 the entire country is this way. Uh, all, all of the different, you know, nobody likes anybody. Uh, now I, I offer that up not as an excuse, but more as a way of. Of explaining that most of the, the most of the horrible people in the in the Conan stories are the white guys, mm-hmm. uh, and Conan is the one who sort of keeps his own moral compass. This this was a story that was not intended to be seen. How do you mean? Well, um, it was. We don't know if it was uh, submitted. Uh, we, Patrice thinks this was rejected by. Um, by right, Farnsworth, uh, right, no, but editor of Weird Tales, he, the the editor of Weird Tales. He thinks it was rejected by right because he uh, Howard wouldn't have written an entire Conan story and not sent it off. Um, yeah, he was very market oriented, unlike Lovecraft. Very, very market oriented, and, and so there, there's there's you know there's at least. Um, uh, there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that he did send it off. It was rejected and it came back, but this was found in Howard's trunk after his death. Now, um, in the fifties, uh, after the gnome books had been published, there was an interest in Conan again. And, um, at this time, DeCamp was involved, uh, as sort of a de facto, he wasn't really he wasn't really the steward of the Conan property at this time, but he was the guy that was associated with him. He did he'd done some editing on some projects, and uh, he wrote some Conan himself, as I recall. He, he he did later. Yeah, what he did is he took existing uh, stories that were not Conan and. Uh, Conan made the rather sim- yeah he Conan yeah he 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 Conan them up yeah he he replaced the guns with the swords because he figured that's all you needed to do. Uh, it's one of the reasons why people don't like what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he and and it, and his rationalization is well, all of Howard's stories are pretty much the same, <laughs> and and so that's kind of a you know horrible way to treat somebody's. Uh, work so but anyways uh veil of the lost woman was one of the stories that was found along with frost giant's daughter and i forget if uh, what the what the third one was uh but there there were there were several unpublished stories at this time and since there was a, a market for it and decamp by editing quote unquote the 
the manuscript for publication. It could uh, get printed and then later collected. Uh, that's what he did. So this was so so you know um, at the time of Howard's death, he had not written any Conan stories in over a year, and and by all in, intentions didn't seem to want to go back to it. Uh, Wright owed him several thousand dollars, and he had stopped working for Weird Tales at the time of his death, and was and was uh, actually in other markets. He had actually cracked Argosy uh, with his funny westerns. And they were paying him, uh, on, I think, on acceptance, if I'm not mistaken. So he, he had an income stream coming in that had nothing to do with Weird Tales. And so all of the Weird Tales stories after Red Nails, and basically from, uh, from about mid-1935 on, are stories that Wright had in inventory – Wright was able to run Weird Tales stories into 1937 with Robert E. Howard because of how many he had stacked up that he hadn't paid Howard for because he paid on payment rather than acceptance. On publication. So Howard wrote, on publication. Yeah, that's, yeah on, on, on publication. I'm sorry. And so, how, and so Howard wrote a very long letter and said, look, I need some dough here, brother. <laughs> and, and it didn't happen. Now, now Wright did eventually pay – uh, Howard's father, everything that he was owed, uh, and I think probably did it sort of out of guilt rather mm-hmm. than obligation. You know, Weird Tales was always financially in trouble. But I just, I, and I feel like I'm off, I'm off track here. I just wanted to let you guys know, you know, we we, we dogged this story pretty heavily, uh, and it's the kind of thing that if Howard were steering the boat. Uh, f- for these stories, had he been around in the 40s and and into the 50s, this might not have seen print. This might have been rewritten. This might, you know what I mean? There's no real. We have, the only thing we have is is what it is, and and uh, and it's now part of the discussion. Uh, when instead we could be talking about Red Nails, Tower of the Elephant. Rogues in the house beyond the Black River. <laughs> well, so yeah. So I I wanna I wanna let, let's do some co- comparison. So if we've talked about the nadir um, of the Conan stories, um, I think there is some dispute as to what the zenith of the of of the Conan stories is. Um, Matt, what's your what's your favorite Conan story <laughs> or the best one? If there's a difference, is there a difference between well, the best and your favorite? I don't know. Um, Red Nails is... its I, I think it's a very powerful story. I was actually... It was maybe a little long for me, but it gave me this incredibly claustrophobic feeling, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I, I feel like it, it was meant to. Mm-hmm. But um, personally, my favorite is The Frost Giant's Daughter, just because wow. of... that's uh, interesting. Because it's, I, I just think it's beautifully written. I, th- I think this okay. one's got some beautiful beautiful writing in it too. Um, it does. Uh, Paul, what's your what's your zenith of of Conan stories? Um, I, I don't say the Veil of Lost Women, or you you will no fuck no the trend. no uh, <laughs> no. For, for some perverse reason, I like the i I like the period when Conan was a pirate. So I'm going to go with Queen of the Black Coast. I'm going to go oh, with Queen of the Black Coast too. Uh, M- Mark. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I uh, for me, it's beyond uh, the Black River. That's a good story, um, and uh, uh, I think it. Uh, I, I, th- I think it's easily one of the strongest. There's a period in, in these stories, and Bela the Lost Woman is one of them, where we stop looking over Conan's shoulder as he's doing stuff, mm-hmm. and he becomes the guy that everybody's heard of, <laughs> and uh, and and and. Um, Beyond the Black River is one of them, uh, even though we're over we're over Conan's shoulder for some of it, uh, and uh, so so yeah, there's but 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 you know everything that you've named now it, Frost John's Daughter is one that's that's really interesting. It is it is beautifully written and uh, uh, it it catches it on the chin for uh, for for uh, rape allegations. Right. Uh, yeah, I can understand with, that. Um, which uh, which people hotly contest, and it, and 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 here's and, and here's an example of Conan's moral code. Uh, you know, I you know uh, where she basically she's prepared to break her deal because you know Conan has has, has told her you mm-hmm. know I'll cut his head off uh, if you'll bed me, and uh, when he comes walking out of the battle. You know, holding the guy's head, she's like, "Oh God, now I've got to pay up." So she, so she runs, and then when, she, and then when he catches up to her and kills the monster, he's like, "You didn't think I was serious, did you?" I mean, I only cut off the guy's head, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's sort of a, you know, it, there's it, it's kind of disingenuous, but it also, uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it, that's part of what makes it not a strong story. Now, that's not to say there's not some parts in it that aren't beautifully written, the the slaughter. Uh, is 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 gorgeous, and it's it's typical uh, Howardian uh, hyperbolic kinetic prose. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a the, the, you know I, even when even when Howard he he's sort of like that pizza company that delivers uh, after midnight. You know, <laughs> even when he's bad, he's still pretty damn good. You know. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, you know, I don't think that, you know, I don't think he could have phoned in his style or his, um, you know, there's, there's very few of his, of his stories that, 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 that are, that ring hollowly on the air. Mm -hmm. There, there's some, there's some exciting prose in this. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and, and world building stuff too. You know, there's, you know, you know, we get to see, uh, once again, Conan walk into a situation uh, as as uh, as a guest or an emissary and walk out of it in charge. That's you know where is that, Ophir that's a, in our in our analog for Earth? Is that supposed to be like Turkey or Greece? Uh, no, it is. Um, the, uh. Oh. Let's see. Corinthian was Assyria. Oh boy, where's Shanks when you need him? Um, the uh, well, it's near Stygia, obviously. Is, yeah, yeah, it's it's oh. it's near Stygia. This would have been which, which is Egypt. This would have I been figure. which is Egypt. Ophir would have been northern Africa. Okay, uh, like like Carthage or something like that. Yeah, Mar- yeah, thereabouts. Okay. Uh, it would it would have been Libya. It would it, it would have okay. been part of that. Um, you know, because oh, she oh. was 
because she was named Livia, I was thinking sure. ancient Rome, but I think Aquilonia is supposed yeah, to be Rome. Yeah, that's right? Aquilonia. Yeah. And then her brother had sort of a Greek-sounding name. Yeah, totally, totally Greek name. And, so, yeah, and just, he's basically a philosopher, right? Um, right, he was, yeah, uh, a man of peace. And the, um, uh, yeah, the Ophirians, uh, yeah, this would have this would have been... Uh, it's too early in the morning for this, guys. Um, <laughs> well, it, it, that doesn't really matter. I mean, uh, the thing is, is they're not perfect analogs anyway. So, mm, um, right? No, no, they aren't. And 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 Howard, and that's intentional. Howard bleeds him so that he doesn't. You know, his whole his whole point in creating this world was so that he didn't have to look up historical details. He was a, a big fan of not caring about historical details when when stories what was important for him. I mean, That's right. he ste- he steals so liberally that what happens is I'll be reading the Odyssey and I say, "Holy shit, it's right in there. You just stole yep. that." And he doesn't care <laughs> because it sounds cool, right? That's right. And That's right. Uh, all this uh, geography sort of maps and stuff that all comes after people piecing it all together. Um, yeah, so yeah, we get the n- name drops of cities and uh, countries and stuff like that. But really, the important part is she's white, um, he's white, and they're in Africa, right? Um, and so, um, I, I I think it's interesting, you know, talking about the Indians uh, of uh, of Texas. Uh, or Texas, local, whatever Texas is called before the Europeans moved in. Um, because it's right here in the story. The, the valley, the veil of lost women, the women there are not black. They're brown-skinned. No. It doesn't say red-skinned, yep. which would be even more obviously uh, native. Right. But the whole, what's so cool to me about this story is, is not the... The cool, you know, descriptions, and I agree that uh, opening slaughter is uh, beautiful and horrible. Um, right. And the <laughs> three paragraphs of the battle uh, against the the Lovecraftian god are also nice, although I don't think it's his best um, giant monster battle at all. Um, what what to me is so fascinating is that this this is like a lot of other stories. Um, I. Like you said, Rogue is in the house, right? So I don't think that that's one of the best Conan stories. In fact, I think it's it's cool, but I like this one a lot more because of sort of the themes that like that's a story about a about a monkey uh, who <laughs> who puts on a cloak and becomes a man, right? And it's kind of like uh, it makes me think, you know, this is this is when Edgar Allan Poe did it, you know. It was a Sherlock Holmes story. When Con- when Conan does it, it's like, uh, uh, who's that guy in the cloak? Oh, it's a monkey. Okay, L- monkey battle, and that's cool. I would love to read a story where Conan actually fights a monkey. Like it's this one foot tall animal that would be hilarious. <laughs> well, you know, ape has what trouble holding you? his own. He's he's a he's a semi demi demi human ape. I don't know troglodyte, some sort of yes that. Thack is uh, is uh, part of Howard's sliding evolutionary scale, right? Uh, from the descent, from from the ascent to civilization to the descent to barbarism, and then uh, then the then uh, there's a point at which barbarism slides down even further into 
um, monstrous. Uh, the the worms in the earth, uh, the the little right, people, right. Brandon McMoran's picks, you know, the these are these are part of that, and so 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 Thack as a man ape. Uh, I, I want to do that it, one as a separate show. So we'll, we'll not, do we'll do that we'll do that as a separate show. Let's, yeah, let's that's... not get too deep into th- to the th- Thack story, but the difference there is is um, I think that's actually shorter than this. I, I'm pretty sure it's shorter mm-hmm. than this. Um, what I like about this story, and he does this a lot in in Conan stories, is he, they're not told from Conan's point of view. They're not anywhere close to him. So in Beyond the Black River, we're actually fairly close to him once we get the introduction. Um, then you know we we hang out with some sort of unimportant, uninteresting characters who give us the view of Conan. So, ba- you right. know, bad writers. Uh, I, not to cast dispersions, but it seems to me every time I, I read a, somebody describing somebody, some character in the mirror, I just got to say, this is not good writing. I can't read this anymore. You know, where, Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about film is you don't need to do that. You, you can just show the person. Uh, but when, when the character describes themselves in the mirror, uh, I hate that. So Robert E. Howard knows that lesson somehow instinctually or whatever. Maybe they knew how to write better back then. He never does that. He never has Conan look into the mirror and describe his muscles, right? It's always described either from a third-person perspective or from uh, another character's perspective. And here we get a combination of both. Mostly, I mean, the entire story is really from Livia's eyes. And I think it becomes rather striking to see the story not as a Conan story, but just as this story of, of a woman who, you know, happens to encounter Conan or just some sort of uh, weird guy and the important part is she's the racist as much as Conan is if not more in this story um, and I guess the narrator uh, the uh, the authorial voice is, is racist as well but I just kept in rereading this story I see it as sort of a uh, she's looking for agency as they, they say right she's looking for um, some actions that she can take and she's always trying to take actions in this story. So mm-hmm. first she she's um, trying to get out of the shock that she's just had of seeing her brother carved up. Right. Then she's uh, trying to deal with this lady who comes in to serve her. Then she sees the uh, horrible toad-like monster uh, who, who kidnapped her after being kidnapped by another group. And then she sees um, Conan come up and she says, aha, this is my chance. And she plays up the racist angle, um, and he's perfectly happy with it. Um, she, quote-unquote, strikes a bargain with him, which he later rethinks. Um, and it's it's kind of a, uh, I'll let you rape me, and that's better than having these guys rape me. Um, but then when he does come calling with the, with the payment in hand, she takes off, rides a horse off to this valley, and then after she figures out what it is, becomes kind of um, okay with what's about to happen until at a certain point uh, she realizes this is not what she wants, right? That it's not, it's not even like what the heck is going on in this this veil of lost men? That's not in in the Indian uh, story from Texas, right? No, it's it's much more Lovecraftian, and I think it was a. Um, uh, I think it was an attempt to attach the story 
uh, into the you know to to sort of graft it into the Hyborian Age. Let you me know? let me read he, this the section here. I think it's really interesting. I, I made many highlights and notes, but when she describes. Um, when she heard, I guess she had overheard the locals talking about this valley. This is how it goes. She thought they were great white blossoms and thought, and the thought gave rise to vague memory. She thought of a valley of which the blacks had spoke, had spoken with fear, a valley to which had fled the young women of a strange brown skinned race when, which had inhabited the land before the coming of the ancestors of the Bacalas. Their men said they had turned into white flowers. Now, that's the weirdest thing. Like, what does this mean? I, I, I Apollo myself. Adapte. I wanna, I wanna find out what this means. Um, turned into white flowers had been transformed by the old gods to escape their ravishers. Now, that word is a really important word, I think, for this story, because uh, today. Uh, and then it concludes there no native dared to go so it sounds like even the black women don't go there it's it, it's inhabited only by the the brown women who fled there to me i i think this is like a suicide sort of situation in a certain sense um the flowers being some sort of symbols for the fertilization of their dead bodies when they go in here uh, the black lotus or white lotus whatever's going on you think they're lilies rather than lotuses? Something like that. I mean, the, okay. the the perfume that goes on about these things, um, she puts, she weaves them into her hair like the other women there. So she's she's sort of, she becomes goes into a dreamlike state. But to me, I, the what makes this such a great story, and I know I'm uh, a little bit rambly here, but I want to get to it so we can discuss it because I think it's fascinating is that this is essentially the story of a woman who flees rapists, um, flees another potential rapist, it turns out he, he changed his mind, um, and then uh, chooses suicide in a certain sense over it, but then discovers that suicide is actually even worse, or at least as bad um, as... Because, because it's sacrificed rather than suicide. Yeah, I mean, it seems like seductive, right, at first, but then when yeah. the great horrible monster comes down and basically is going to do the same thing to her, it's like there's no escape. And so, so she is saved in the end by a man, but to me the most striking image is it, it is a man fighting a god. Like, literally it's described as a god, and the god doesn't win, and the god doesn't lose, and Conan doesn't win, and the Conan doesn't lose, but he sort of staves off the the rape, and uh, it comes away shredded and bloody. But to me, it's like some sort of um, Nietzschean, uh, you know, you got to fight God, and this is not so much a the focus of the story because, of course, Livia's the one getting the perspective, and we get that cute ending. So it feels like it, the the story isn't what a lot of Conan readers want. And I think that might be why it's hated as much, or I don't know if the word's right, least liked. Because I, 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 I there's other Conan stories I don't like as much. They're kind of long, and they spend too much time with the other characters. Here, at least, Livia um, has... She's in a real tough spot. Um, her choice is very strange at the end you know going into this valley if it is a choice at all 
But it really, to me, it is about that ravishing. And I, I think it's really important people know what that word means. Because when we think about it, it means, uh, in our time, it means beautiful or, you know, you're very attractive. But what it literally is, is basically you knock a lady on the head, throw her over your shoulder and take her home. Right? Yeah, it's a verb. It is oh, yeah. a verb. To ravish. <laughs> yeah. And that idea uh, is not limited to this story. It is traditionally the way many marriages, almost all kind of marriages in any kind of uh, quote unquote primitive culture, um, all the all the native tribes around where I live here, um, this was explicitly ritually practiced. Um, even between friendly tribes, um, friendly groups would do it, and non-friendly groups would do the same thing. They just turn the people into slaves and then marry them. Um, so the bridal raiding parties, and it, it goes right up to today. I, I don't, uh, Matt, you're married, right? Uh, was married. Oh, okay. <laughs> if, if you're if you're asking me if I ravished my wife. <laughs> Well, uh, let me ask you this. Did you this. carry her over the threshold? Because that uh, is yeah, straight out. Yeah, you know what? I might this. have done that. Yep, that's symbolic ravishing. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it becomes like, um, it, it becomes a sort of beautiful token ceremony stuff that we don't even think about. But it's straight out of this. Right. That's yeah. that. And this real thing. So to me, the horror is, you know, yeah, the racism's bad. That's what you get when you read 1930s pulp pulp magazines, because it's full of that. But right. But the real horror is that in behind that racism is sort of a. To, I think you can understate the the fantasy element and. Uh, you know, focus on that or overstate the fantasy element and just look at this is a lady who, who got kidnapped and is, you know, being yeah. forcibly held. And so I don't blame her for, you know, manipulating or lying to Conan at all. I don't think anybody would. But that, no, to me, that's no. the fascinating part about this story is that it's it's really Livia's story, not Conan's. I, I Gentlemen, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. This is this is fascinating. I, well, I think I think you have a point, Jesse. And if you take a look at the comic book ad, adaptation, yeah. where where that tiny little bit of the battle against the Elder God is expanded into three pages, is an attempt to try to rejigger the story into something more "quote unquote" Conan like. It is more Conan like that way, right? I, I love that. Yeah. I love that aspect of the. It's it's awesome. It makes us think about you know, man fighting God and, you know, coming away scathed, but not vowed. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So I think I th this is, this is a story set in Conan's world, but not Conan's story per se. It's Livia's story. Conan is just a secondary character, almost yes. a, almost a deus ex machina. Yes. Yeah. Or, for, for Olivia trying very to escape so. a bad situation. Hey, very, Paul, mu very much so. Paul, yeah. what was what was the Apollo story you mentioned? Oh, Apollo and Daphne. It's a, it's 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 a myth where Daphne was this maiden. The god Apollo decides, oh, I want to have sex with you. Daphne says, I'm having none of that. Runs away. Apollo's chasing her. Daphne begs her father to save me from this and her father turns her into a laurel tree. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that, okay. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, Apollo 
made the laurel his uh, his symbol afterwards. But yes, yeah, so, so I mean that whole turning into flowers thing. When I read that, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Apollo and Daphne redux. Yeah, yeah, and well, and that's uh, that actually fits in with what we know about uh, Farnsworth Wright, who was a, a, a scholar, uh, specifically a Shakespearean scholar. But was would would have been very familiar with Bullfinch's mythology, uh, which we know Howard used, uh, and so uh, this might have been another attempt at Howard specifically pitching to Farnsworth Wright something that he thought Wright would be interested in. Uh, that's one, you know, um, the. Uh, aforementioned um, Frost Giant's daughter was the same thing. It, it was Howard uh, doing doing his commercial best to interest Wright and to get Wright to not only buy the story but give him give him the cover because if you got the cover you got an extra twenty five bucks. Mm. <laughs> so so uh, this whole period of time that these Conan stories are being written, he's actively competing with Seabury Quinn uh, for uh, you know uh, you know the, the, they're, the, they never met, they never corresponded, but there's a joust going on here uh, uh, between Howard's Conan and Jules de Grandin, who has and, and if you read any of those stories, they're they're low grade bondage uh, uh, scenes in ev- in every one. As Women opposed tied to, up. Uh, Howard's high grade bondage, bondage, which is uh, like the slithering <laughs> well, yeah. shadow on the cover, you know, or uh, exactly, you know. exactly, and you, you know, throw in, and, and throw in some sex scenes. In fact, we have one of those in here um, with the uh, lesbian uh, kiss. Yes. Uh, one that, uh, and it's, and it's a scene that gets, uh, that did make it into red nails, you know? Uh, and and this was all, uh, this was all Howard's attempt. You know, he had just gone through, um, the, the great depression had hit. He had lost all of his money when the bank failed in cross planes. He needed to rebuild his nest egg. And so he was looking for something that would be steady, that would pay. Weird tales usually paid the most. And Weird Tales had a had a habit of buying his, his the stuff that he couldn't sell in other magazines. So he 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 backed Farnsworth Wright's horse, and so I, Conan in this regard is his I feel uh, commercial attempt at currying Wright's favor, which is why. There's a lot of stuff in the Conan stories that you don't find in the other books. Uh, it's why th- th- there's a there's a period of the of these middling Conan stories, and I would include this in it, where uh, and, and and you've pointed out Livia does have some agency, but it's it's um, it's not the same kind of agency that Valeria no has or Billette, uh, you know, uh, and, and so. Uh, there's a yeah. Uh, you have you have to look at these things in, in terms of the decisions that Howard was making, especially when you compare it to something like Sword Woman, which is straight over the shoulder of Dark Agnes, uh, and is one of the most pointed commentaries about the patri- patriarchy you're ever going to find uh, 
uh, in an unpublished pulp story that Howard couldn't find an audience for in 1935. But um, I, I think, I, you know, I, I love your interpretation of this because it does lend, it, it gives a little, it gives the story a little bit more weight and substance. And um, I, even though I don't like it, uh, this is a topic that Howard played with a lot. And, and he played with it in nearly every one of his uh, Hero King sagas. He played with it in his other stories, this clash of culture. Uh, it, it, Howard was very interested in, in, in men coming together, conflict, uh, and usually it was different men from different um, parts of the world. I mean, if you look at all of his Oriental adventure mm-hmm. crusader stories, it's the same thing, man. It's it's half white, you know. It's it's half Danish, half Irish mercenaries who've been fighting alongside the uh, the the knights and the Templars. And they've all gone home, and the mercenaries are getting drunk, and they wake up one morning, and there's an army of Muslims outside the gate, <laughs> ready to take back the fort. You know, and so yeah, now I, all of a sudden, I, I mean, that's, this is uh, think of think you. I don't know how close you guys read comics, but uh, to me, I never really liked superheroes that much. After, I mean, I was Batman when I was a kid. You know, I I get the cape out, and I'm, I'm making my own cape. You know. I'm, uh, when I'm six years old, Batman. Uh, first, I started Superman. Then I'm gonna become Batman because Batman's a real person. Now I just need money, right? Um, I, I'm not an alien born on another planet. I can't. I know I can't fly. Batman I can't fly. I'm, the, the only thing between you and Batman is a big pile of money. That's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, I, I'll get. I'll engineer my own car and drive without license plates. No problem. Um, what what I uh, what I can't be is a superhero because I just don't have you know. I love the X-Men. I think X-Men are amazing. Uh, in the 80s, the, the writing there is just fantastic. It's so beautiful and metaphorical. But, I, you know, unless it's Watchmen, I don't really want to read uh, about superheroes because it's just too... It's a bunch of people punching each other and having no brain damage and no, yeah. no nobody gets killed. Uh, reading Conan in Conan the Barbarian comics as a kid, I... I found out about it late, uh, probably around uh, issue 200 or something, and then I started buying the back issues. And what I love about Robert E. Howard's stories that that are adapted into these is that are, they're actually not just a bunch of white guys hitting each other. Um, it's, no, it's... It, yeah. There's black people, there's Chinese people. I mean, they're not called Chinese people, but they're Chinese, right? Right. There's, uh, there's right. a... And, and I think what's amazing is they do a really good job of just sort of sanitizing it um taking out the uh the really offensive stuff um so that when it is adapted um you kind of don't even know that it has that kind of sort of overwhelming root because no. it honestly he's just really interested in race um yeah. and what he thinks he of is. as race is is what i would say is you know that guy comes from a different culture than me. Um, they they work together as a group that's not my group, uh, and that reflected my experience in the world. So when I was a kid, uh, we moved around British Columbia a lot, and a lot of places we moved, there's like 
tons of native kids and I'm the only white kid. And I get the shit beat out of me because I'm not in their group. You know, I'm right. some, some foreigner. And then I, I'm friends with a group um, and I feel like, geez, it's nice not to be have the shit beat out of you. Uh, for the color of your skin, right? It's right, a really right. nice thing. Um, and spending time with people who have different uh, cultural interests um, that aren't worse, but you know they have different food flavors. Man, that's really important to me. They have yeah. uh, different ideas. That's really important to me. And I, I saw Conan as this character who, what's he do? He goes around, lives his life, um, not trying to accumulate wealth. Not like in, uh, if you guys saw that horrible, um, I, I don't know how horrible it was, but it was pretty bad. Um, the game, uh, Age of Conan game, where you're just accumulating magic items and, and you know, getting special clothing. Conan doesn't care about his clothing. Conan doesn't care about, you know, getting magic items. It's not, yeah. it's not Dungeons and Dragons in wealth accumulation. It's living life to the lees in the way that Odysseus does. Going out, being a badass and thinking things through. And having these experiences in cities and, and, and uh, ancient cultures and, and, and having positive and negative experiences with... with, um, with That's right. I mean, uh, can you honestly tell me of a superhero comic from, the ni- from 1979, which this one is from, I guess, or around there, um, that has... Or just regular comic that has black people in it um, other than, you know, Black Panther... The only other time you see it is like this, some you know drug dealer or you know some kid being saved or some lady's baby being saved. Marvel was better at it, you know. They were. Um, they they had more black characters more. than DC, and uh, and while they were all written by guys named Mort and Saul, yeah. it, it it was still uh, they they were definitely putting out the effort. Um, I still don't yeah. see comics today with a lot of black characters in it. And with that run from, was it, issue 60 up to issue 100 um, with Bellet and uh, Conan, you get spent a ton of time in these cultures that I've never been to. Uh, obviously, they're not real, but they kind of rhyme with, with real stuff. And then even afterwards, I, I think the placement of this story, the adaptation, issue 104... Uh, Three issues after uh, Bellet's final death scene. Yeah. And you, I don't know if you guys noticed it. This, you know, the is it? Uh, yeah, John Buscema and Ernie Chan, or Chua, mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. as he's called. The the brown women in the f- splash page, they look exactly like Bellet, except with dark skin. Yeah. And it really works so, somehow to me. Like the anger that we see, or the violence that Conan's doing at the beginning of this story. Um, just seems to me like death, you know, sort of a sad, uh, angry guy um, trying to escape it and then coming out of it. Right. It's the giant mirths and giant melancholies that he that are talked about in the um, in the Numidian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I I think I I I think you I think you understand this, which is nice because a lot of people will read this. They they hit the the stereotypical descriptions of the natives and flip out like ninjas, you know. Yeah. Uh, they just they they just out the door, you know. And I get it. I totally get it. I understand. I would never ever 
hand this to somebody and say, you got to read this. Uh, if, if this, if, if you don't like this story, you can't be a Conan fan. Um, I, I totally understand it, but it, you got to remember that, that, or, or, or rather I'm, I'm over the age of 40, which means I'm allowed to think of things in their, in their context, <laughs> historically and culturally. It's permissible uh, or it's just, it, it, it is, it is permissible okay. for me to do that. Yes. It's not, you can't really do that if you're 24. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but when you're, when you're, when you're 48, you, you, you have the luxury of being able to go, you know, the, the reason why um, his natives are are ebony skinned and and woolly haired is because his his Shemites all had hooked noses and were crafty, mm-hmm. and his Arabs, you know, all of these racial characteristics, this this racialism, uh, which uh, is part of the Conan world, was his shorthand to get you to because uh, he was never allowed to explain his world uh, he wrote the giant um, history of the Hyborian age and Farnsworth Red said I'm not going to run this mm-hmm. and so Howard had to put it in pieces and parts he had, to, he had to leaven it into the story he had to he had to put it at the top of you know he had to, he had to put it in the scrolls of Skelos and the, and the Nemedian Chronicles is a sort of way of explaining uh, this stuff. And so there's a reason why these characters are described the way they're described. He wants you to think, Oh, these must be the cultural, uh, ancestors from the fourth age, from the Thurian age of what would later become, uh, the Muslim, or who would later become the uh, Indians, or who would later become the Egyptians, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so that's intentional, you know, completely intentional. And uh, it, when it's something like um, Hawks over Outremay, which is... I, uh, I just found that uh, to be public domain oh, in Canada. Anyways, I found the original publication. I'm putting that up. Cor- Cormac Fitzjeffrey uh, finds out that uh, uh, one of the great Muslim uh, historical leaders, uh, you know, kills his friend in a battle and and rides for three days and nights, cuts through uh, his men in a a bloody slaughter and uh, is uh, surrounded. And at the end of the story, but, you know, when he says – you know, fine. I'll, I'll take my punishment. I'll, I'll die at your hand. That you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've, I may not have avenged my friend on you, but I've evened the score. And the, and he says, I would never kill a man so willingly able uh, who wants to die for his friend. Um, your pain is enough. Go in peace. And Cormac, the white guy, looks at his own barbarism and is ashamed. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, and that exactly, it's awesome. Yes, if, you, if you're, um, so so you know these, the the my guys are great and your guys are shitty vibe works in both directions. When it gets uncomfortable, is in Black Canaan when the Black Swamp people uprise and organize. 
and 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 start uh, to march on the white colony post slavery. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that gets really uncomfortable. But it is exactly the same kinds of things that you find in every single one of Howard's other stories with different races and cultures uh, substituting um, out, you know, uh, for uh, uh, bad guys and good guys. In in Howard's world, there were no bad guys and good guys. Um, These guys are coming to power. We're going to oppose them. I mean, in, in Beyond the Black River... The picks win, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. The the picks the picks burn the burn down all the settlements, and the new frontier uh, it, it suffers a setback, you know. And that's when Howard says barbarism is the natural state of mankind. Civilization is a whim of circumstance. Isn't it barbarism- weird? Isn't it weird that? Uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody agrees with this <laughs> this thesis that he has. I, I know Lovecraft didn't agree with it. I don't think any of us agree with it. We have some sympathy. <laughs> we have some sympathy for it, but the you know, I'd much rather. I, I've been camping. It sucks. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the more the more stuff you take to make yourself more comfortable in the woods. The worse, it, the more difficult it is. So when you start carrying, you know, electrical devices and, you know, phone chargers and, you know, all the things that make your camping experience better, you're kind of degrading the whole point, which is basically it's like being homeless. And why would anybody want to be homeless? I like hot showers, but on the other hand, sure. I understand why Conan, you know, wants to. When he goes riding off on a horse, he doesn't have a giant backpack full of, uh, you know cooking pots and stuff you know it's just a haunch of meat and there's there's a lot of maybe, a lot to be said for that romantic version yeah, of it absolutely it's very it's very romantic and he admits that his his ideal of barbarism is is romantic and and, oh, yeah. and actually that's a specific term um that he is using uh with regard to anthropology in this sure. in this case I want to I um, get um, I want to get your guys' um, take. So, Matt, how did you come to Conan stories? Was it through the comics first, and then to the? It books? was actually through the movie. Ah, um, oh, yes, of course. My my friends read the comics, and I had no interest in anything that didn't have superheroes, so I was never into it. And um, I think like maybe it was like Thanksgiving or something. Uh, Conan the Barbarian was on HBO and somebody had it on. And I was just like looking in the direction of the TV as I did. And I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. It is awesome. That's <laughs> the word uh, for it. And I went out uh, probably with my Christmas money, you know, maybe a month, month and a half later. And I bought like um, all 12 of the Ace books. Yeah, you know, wow. and just started tearing into them. So you never, you never got into the comics at all. Um, well, after that, I started reading Savage Sword of Conan, yeah, which was great, the black great, and white great, magazine, great. if and, not the greatest uh, comic magazine it, it, ever made. <laughs> and Ooh. of course, it had you know like bloodier violence and sexier sex yep. than the more color nudity comics did. Uh, or actual that. nudity sometimes. Uh, Paul, yeah. how how did you come to uh, Robert E. Howard? A combination of the movies and Dungeons and Dragons because right. appendix right. in. Yep. Yeah, because like oh, I mean, the, yeah, the, the appendix like oh, what's this? Let's find out more. Like oh, this is cool, sword and sorcery. This is 
great stuff for a role-playing game. And I never actually got into the comics per se. I mean, I saw them now and again, but yeah, I just, after, after I started learning about them and about the movies, like I started reading the actual stories to learn more and to feed my role-playing uh, adventures and imagination. I don't think, I don't think there is a, a, a lot of people who would say that the Savage Sword of Conan was a better, uh, sorry, Conan the Barbarian was a better mag, magazine or comic than Savage Sword. I think everybody agrees pretty much that it's the other way around. Savage Sword was much better. Um, well, I, I, th- I think Windsor Smith, uh, late, or the later Windsor Smith stories, uh, basically uh, uh, after you know uh, the late teens and early twenties are certainly some of his best work. Sure. But um, Basima was was built for this, yeah. And and the 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 early Savage sort of Conans and the Savage Tales uh, that Basima put together with uh, Alfredo Alcala inks mm-hmm. uh, that have that that illustrative quality. That sort of um, uh, there, there's a Alcala put an almost um, Howard Pyle kind of a kind of an illustrative style. On it, uh, like the Brandywine artist, and, and and there's some of that stuff is just gorgeous. Uh, double page spreads mm-hmm. uh, for, for establishing shots, uh, beautiful cityscapes, uh, and, and uh, you just really can't, uh, you, you know, some those early Savage Sword magazines are, uh, I think, for a lot of people, you know, and, and taking nothing away from Frazetta. But when you think of Conan, you think of those because I do. Yeah. Uh, because of their 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 dynamism, their you know their their uh, uh, they they just have a weight to them that 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 the comics uh, by virtue of the code and 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 other let's let's call it diverse hands mm-hmm. uh, could match. You know, Roy had his hand on all of it, thankfully, and was able to guide a lot of. Uh, Things, but uh, I, I I would definitely uh, I'd much rather read the first twenty issues of Savage Sword of Conan than the first twenty issues of Conan the Barbarian. No, nothing against. Yeah, no, there's. Uh, it's it's just a preference. Yeah, it's I not agree. a. No, know. I think it really gets cooking. I, I don't know after about issue twenty or something. There was this Red Sonya uh, thing, but the thing is, is what's so amazing is that yeah, you, in the same rack where you see Doctor Strange and and uh, Spider Man. You'd also see Conan, and then you open it up, and there you just chopped a guy's head off, right? And right. they're very, very careful not to show the blood. Um, in the, this adaptation, you you see what looks like a wig, right? But uh, if you uh, look a little, think about it a little bit, that's a dude's head. Um, yeah. And that is amazing. You're showing me a kind of reality <laughs> that is a kind of real reality. This is the kind of reality that makes you not want to join the army. Whereas the, uh, you know, Sergeant Rock, which I also liked, had a lot of shooting in it. Nobody ever gets really killed. I mean, they get killed every issue on the cover, but then you find out, oh, it was just a bluff, right? Nobody really gets hurt in 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 DC's Sergeant Rock or any of the, any of the war comics. Um, and when you're sitting there, uh, having been physically beaten up by... Uh, some kid who is not in uh, the same skin color as yours. Um, it's nice to see that you know there are some some uh, realities that can be reflected in your in your childish consuming of fiction. 
Um, to me, I, I think it was Conan the Barbarian um, I started with, and I found Savage Sword, and I collected the crap out of that, and I was I wasn't subscribed ever, but it was the kind of thing where you know I would absolutely go to the newsstand or the bookstore or what uh, comic book store every week and then try and find old back issues and and then coming to it the other way uh, to the stories what I find is that there if you look at the the text in the comic adaptation it's incredibly faithful there's almost line for line retellings of most of it um, and when it isn't literally written there in the text it is described the images described you know Livia looking through a peephole between the the bamboo shoots that hold up her wall that happens twice in the story and it happens twice in the comic right it's literally yeah. described and that was uh, I, I think you're right Roy Thomas um, sort of caring to not fuck with the material um, that's right. At all. Yeah, I was surprised at how faithful the uh, adaptation was. Uh, the yeah, only thing that really is not in the story is that Conan has uh, feathers in his hair in the story. Uh, yeah. In the comic book, he's wearing his regular costume, right? Um, right. Which is, yeah. Uh, f- but by, by, by then, the underwear there was model <laughs> costume. Yeah, well, you know, there, were, there, was, there was a need to sort of standardize Conan's look. And, and unfortunately, the furry loincloth... Uh, I'm, I'm good know, with it. Fit with, with, he pulls with it the, off. <laughs> you know, it, but it's he pulls what, off the line call. He pulls it, off. The, it's what. It's because call. of that that we got. Uh, we get a nearly naked Howard uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger during the movie. And, you know, and they and were rightly using. So. Yeah. And rightly so. so. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I like that uh, Howard seems very happy to have nude women and nude men practically. Um, <laughs> Uh, what, yeah, gossamer. Yeah, gossamer uh, material clinging to uh, heaving bosoms. Uh, you know, I'm for it. <laughs> in, as as a 14 year old male, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think I can visualize that just fine. It's Thank you wonderful. very much. It's wonderful. I mean, it, sure. It's skin tight. Um, you know, costumes on superheroes not as good as, uh, yeah, naked flesh. I I 100 agree. <laughs> Um, what didn't we cover on this? I think pretty here's, darn here's good a, story. Here's a major thing that we didn't cover. What's that? And if this was a if this was a writing podcast, mm-hmm. we would have covered this out of the gate. Okay. Um, this story is completely broken from uh, a fiction storytelling point of view uh, because it's basically two stories pasted together. I agree. Together. It is that mm-hmm. there yeah. is absolutely. Outside of the title, there's absolutely no reference to the veil of women in the first part of the story. You have no right. idea what's coming up. And there's no impact uh, from the first part of the story in the second part of the story, except for Conan. Well, I, you know I, I, mean? I would dispute that a little bit. And I want to point, I agree that that's exactly how it looks. And it certainly is how it feels. And I think that's how most people think. But to me, the, the weirdness of the of that valley and what's going on there is sort of a, a without that incredibly brutal massacre um, they just do a genocide basically right it sounds like they're even killing the women um, 
without that at the beginning you don't have this desperate run away and she's not just fleeing um conan she's fleeing men she's fleeing um the the horror of reality um and then of course it's subverted with conan coming to the rescue but i think that well, there's a kind of weird balance between this incredibly horrible um I mean, it, it doesn't work as a... Mo- Nobody would ever adapt this as a as a TV show straight the way it is, right? They could, you know, couldn't do a TV episode or a movie episode or anything because of the way it feels not well-written. But See, I, I feel you're, you're looking at the story in, in that respect as a balance between the male and the female. Yeah. You're looking at that with a critic's eye but if you looked at it with an editor's eye that would never fly unless you could make it much more explicit it um i like that it's not explicit i like that i don't know what the answer is but it's got that sort of sword and sorcery randomness okay she gets on a horse she runs away and where does she run she runs right into another adventure and Conan has to get her out of it, and Conan has even, to fight the elder god. Even the horse it's, is male, and it bucks her. It bucks <laughs> her I, you're, you're, onto the you're, you're soft bed of the valley. Like, like when you reaching. read it closely, like I did with my students, going through every sentence, every word, you start. I started to see like this is literally um, this is a bed. This is like the you know the velvet and the uh, the sword, right? This this is. This is her going to sleep. And, you know, if she had had a knife there, I might think she would have cut her own wrists or something. Like, this is something she's slipping into. It's got three chapters that are not mentioned in the audiobook, or sections, right? And the first yeah. is is that that uh, introduction. The second is the, the fleeing, I think. And then the third is the valley. And, yeah, it doesn't make sense. The title doesn't make sense. The, the maleness and femaleness are not equally balanced um and and when you compare it to even something like with the man eaters of zambula or uh beyond the black river structurally those those are better put together Mm uh because um there's uh you know there's there's a lot more use of the idea of chekhov's gun in both uh stories yeah there's no chekhov's gun here no, no, it's just... Uh, it's not, it, it's, it, I can see why somebody might reject it. See, and the thing is, is I, you know, Patrice thinks that it was sent and rejected. I think this was a first draft that he didn't send in. I mean, we don't Amazing know. Amazing first and, draft, though. I mean, look at that language. Oh, certainly. I, certainly. You know, the... Uh, we we, we, we up and, afterwards. And having seen multiple drafts of Howard's stuff... Uh, typically, you know, Howard would only go through and change a, a couple of words. I mean, this stuff came out of him nearly finished uh, and, and certainly um, almost always that level of polish from the get-go. Uh, and especially when he had something to say. And, you know, both bon- both Beyond the Black River and Red Nails are examples of Howard using Southwestern themes – in the Conan stories in such a way that they, that it works. This one doesn't quite work. Although, um, if you can track, if you can track down his, 
his telling of the tale of Cynthia and Quanta Parker. It's it's great. It's just it's eight paragraphs of of smiting and killing and oh, it's just awesome. That sounds good. Uh, and, and 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 it feels uh, not unlike the battle scene that that we get in Vale. Uh, I just. Um, uh, you know, I I think I, I think it's I'm glad that you were able to look past sort of the obvious discomfort of the the stereotypical uh, insulting um, look language. I've read the hyena. And, and, that is a fucking racist right. story. It is incredibly fucking racist. Um, I I kind of like the story, even though I I feel ashamed. In liking it because I like werewolf stories and this is one with the hyena which is awesome. Well, uh, but he doesn't know anything about real Africa and so I like no, I like that I like that you know his imagination of what of what these places is like is it's cool and I love spending time with his prose but it, it, this is not really that racist compared to a lot of his other I mean it is racist a hundred percent. But it doesn't like that one. You feel dirty and sullied walking away from that one. What what uh, what? I think the thing is is that there's stronger women in some of the other Conan stories, and Conan acts better in some of the Conan stories. Well, he comes out of it. I forgive. I forgive him. If I set this after um, Queen of the Black Coast, where he is, what so uh, that's another story where he is not the agent, right? He he, right. he falls under her spell in the same way that all yeah. her her ship ship's sailors fall fell under her spell. He follows her uh, to her death and her greed. Yeah. Um. And 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 and, and they rape and pillage and do. plunder for a, a year uh, while uh, while living on the boat and uh, and just basically laying waste to everything uh, in, in, at, at the at their prow, you know, which is which is great. I want to well, I want to point out point out one one or two other things before we have to lose you guys. Um, sure. I don't want to lose you, but I uh, it, these things happen. I want to point out that in the original uh, was it magazine of horror uh, publication, I, I, they changed it for the more recent publications. Um, blacks are uh, changed to natives, so I don't know if it right. the original text. So there's a he says I've had enough of these. Uh, Black sluts. That's in the text that is in the audiobook. It's native sluts mm-hmm. in the original uh, publication, and that happens a couple of times where the black is replaced. Wait, in in what version? The, is mag- the original magazine of horror publication. Whereas the Conan the Sumerian uh, Del Rey uh, version, it's yes, it's that's changed. Right. I, probably back to the original is my guess. That's right. Conan's type scripts, uh, the original type scripts, use the word black. Uh, and all and yellow. It kind and of brown softened it for the sixty-seven version a couple of times, I think. It, it did, and the Ace versions had the same uh, stuff done to them. It's not uh, major decan- changes. It's just here and there. There's a. I mean, when you put black and slut next to each other, it's kind of sounds even worse than native slut. Right. Well, neither, neither of them sound great. Um, on the other hand, uh, one of the words that is used a lot, uh, it's used in here. Uh, is wench. I used to think wench was a bad word. It it, it sounds bad. Um, and in the context of Conan, uh, you know, it's not giving women a lot of agency. 
but it doesn't it's actually not uh didn't start off as a pejorative at all um so i'm not sure what the context would have been uh at the time of the writing um it's just sort of an archaic made woman sort of word right yeah um go yeah. outside uh go outside the house today Jesse, yeah, call, start call calling all the women wench see what yes. that gets you <laughs> bring me more mead wench i don't yes. think that's gonna work <laughs> out that well and if and if you can use native slut in a in a, in a sentence, and see, um, well, no, I, this is I just want to make the point that and 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 keep in mind I'm a doughy white guy from Texas, uh, who was reading this stuff in the '70s, so my original exposure to Conan was DeCamp's saga, with the uh, Lynn Carter and other stuff. Uh-huh. pushed in and mushed around and the non Conan Conan stories mushed in and, and the, and the editing that Donald Grant and all of them did to, to remove, uh, you know, black and replace it with native. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. the best example. And it's the most frequent yeah. Solomon Kane had the same thing. Um, but, uh, I, I still don't think that's the takeaway from these stories. Yeah. The, the character of Conan is such a powerful agent of change in every story he's – nearly every story that he's in. And, and if he's not an agent of change, he is the witness to a change. And we, when you read the stories, you cannot help what, – what, what carries you up in, in the story is – is Conan's own sense of right and wrong. You know, Conan in God in the Bowl, Conan admits he's the thief. I mean, I was here to steal, but I didn't kill the guy. Mm-hmm. And and when the guy that hired him to steal the artifact tries to pin the murder on him, you know, Conan says, all right, I've had enough of this, and kills, you know, in, in one page, he blinds a guy and, and cripples another. And, you know, and, you're, and, and, you're, and you're like... Yeah, this is the guy that's not going to take this crap. And so, you know, it's it's Conan as a character that's our takeaway from this, uh, and and the fact that he keeps his own ca- uh, moral compass, and and it is and it is a, it is a moral compass. You know, he makes a point in another story. You know, before, um, before you wrap up, I want we don't sell our women. I, you know? I want to uh, throw some philosophy down on on you. This is the thing that I I, I haven't read your book, Mark. Um, I I want to, but there's no audiobook as far as I I know. We need to fix that. Um, we should fix that. Yeah, we we can I I can hook you up with some narrators and probably find a way to get it on audible that way um make some cash uh, audiobooks are bigger business now than ebooks i think um we could definitely have that conversation cool. <laughs> um i i want to throw down some uh some philosophy because uh i don't I, I don't know if you guys notice it but i notice it a lot i studied philosophy at university i'm a very philosophical guy i think about you know profound thoughts all the time <laughs> and so whenever i see um it happening. This is something that's never in any of the pastiches. Nobody, uh, DeCamp never uh, did it. Lynn Carter never did. It. Nobody else seems right. to care. Uh, but uh, Robert E. Howard was a big fan of philosophy, even if he wasn't, you know, formal, uh, formally educated in it. Because uh, the Mirrors of Tuzun Thun is basically uh, a Philip K. Dick story with Cull. 
Um, yes. It's pretty amazing. And here he throws a little bit of philosophy in here, and it makes you... Th- and it's like, that, why is he throwing that in there? Because he's interested in it. That's why. Listen to this. Women are as cheap as plantains in this land, and their willingness or unwillingness matters as little. I don't think that that's a philosophical statement. I think that that's just description of women's state in the world basically up until today. Um, women are as cheap as plantains in this land, cheap as bananas, and their willingness or unwillingness matters as little. Um, that's how mar- that's property rights in Europe for uh, up to the 20th century. Yes. Listen to the next one. Um, the hum- This is a very... Uh, randomly placed the human mind clings unconsciously to familiar values and ideas even among surroundings and conditions alien and unrelated to those environs to which such values and ideas are adapted that sounds like it could have come out of some uh, psychology text read it again the human mind clings unconsciously to familiar values and ideas even among surroundings and conditions alien and unrelated to those environs to which such values and ideas are adapted. That doesn't sound like Robert E. Howard's Conan, does it? No, no, uh, but I think I know where you're going with this. I'm going to continue. There's Co- a few more. Go ahead. All uh, right, go ahead. Uh, I just like this is on page 55, 56 of the Veil of Lost Women magazine of horror edition. She was stunned by the real. Uh, she was stunned by the realization that nothing hinged upon her at all. She could not move men as pawns in a game. She herself was the helpless pawn. So this is leading me to the thoughts of of why she chooses this sort of suicide at the end. And all the other women who went into this valley did as well. Uh, And then this is... I didn't quite highlight this, but I'm going to do it anyways. I see the absurdity of supposing that any man in this corner of the world would act according to the rules and customs existent in another corner of the world. That's Livia uh, saying to Conan. Um, And then Conan has... uh, You know, he gets insulted with the barbarian things, owns it, and then says this. Custom... uh, This is just... This is Howard talking, not a character. Customs differ in various countries, but if a man is strong enough, he can enforce a few of his native customs anywhere. I'm thinking that these, uh, some of these are seem incongruous, right? Unless you well, look at it as a gender thing, right? You could well. I I, I thought you were going to go mm-hmm. uh, that Conan is an iconoclast. Yeah, he's uh, that too, hundred percent. He, yeah, and and that's you know, and and that's where Conan uh, is always running up against the civilized guys, and, and looking at them, going, "You guys are crazy." That, you know, that's didn't I, right you know, in the beginning of the Queen of the Black Coast, right? The reason he's absolutely fleeing, he's just killed the judge who says you have to bear witness against that man. Um, he says, "I'm I'm not going to do that. You guys yeah, are he's crazy. I'm going to kill you." <laughs> Yeah, and so uh, and so the, I think that's that's part of what makes Conan so attractive, is his willingness to uh, to to th- put a thumb in the eye of civilization. Yep, he lives by his own uh, code and, he's and, and subject and, to reform, and, and and also not be afraid to impose his own beliefs on a given situation. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rape you. But I'm I'm not gonna leave you for them either, mm-hmm. you know. That would that would be uncivilized, <laughs> <laughs> unbarbaric. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's you know, two so, more. You know. Two more here. Listen to this. Uh, Livia says you will break the truce, 
And then Conan says, truces, uh, truces in this land are made to be broken. Now, mm-hmm. most of the people reading that, they're just saying, yeah, it's just another line of dialogue. To me, like, well, that's interesting. Is there a time when, you know, <laughs> any truce you make with Hitler is not going to be, you know, very <laughs> good truce. He He's just using it as manipulation. Now, does that justify you breaking your truce? I don't know. Uh, next line, uh, the final line, I guess, of the ones I've circled here. What would be blackest treachery in another land is wisdom here. And the thing is, is uh, this, this is actually real politic, right? This is what they call, you know, we have a we have a story we put on for the public, the masses. But come on, we all know how the world really works. Force right. is the only only source of power. There's no yeah. consensus building. That's all bullshit. That's that's a way to manipulate people. Um, what and, what would be blackest treachery in another land is wisdom here. And and his point being is that this this is a place in constant turmoil. You know, uh, truces were made to be broken. The, 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 these people are always at war with one another. These people are always. Uh, being treacherous to one another, and and so if, if and we so, discount the the character, uh, the you know, the the characters who lived there, I'm just listening to this is what Livia is getting told, right? And then right when when Conan does the thing he promises to do, she it's like it's just like with her brother being tortured to death in front of her. What did they want to do? They wanted to go to study. He was the younger brother. She was I guess there to help him out, right? Uh, be his what I would call a homestay, you know, the the mom taking care of the the kid who's going to school. Um, she's there to help out with the family, you know, make the family uh, wiser and richer, and you know, have more books and education. And what she get, the, she gets a real politic education, where the only power you have is what you can seize. You know, breaking out of that prison, grabbing a horse and riding off. It seems a lot more powerful when you focus on... on I, I At least that's what I thought. felt like I, I was not... I don't see anybody talking about this in the yeah. um, in the online stuff. They, they just... Yeah. You know what? I think that if the story ended with Livia riding off on the horse... And there was a line in there, basically, like what you just said, the only power in this world is what you can seize. Right. That would have been a solid story. Yeah, and the, and the button ending, that's a cute little ending that he's done a million times in, you know, it's it's at the end of, I love the ending of um, Red Nails, right? Where right. You know, let's go off and have another adventure and get our, get our asses handed to us for a while and then... And then uh, there's more money to be made, right? You know, the, the the cute ending, which he's very good at, sort of undercuts the uh, the and the fact that she is saved by him. You know, Conan right. sort of seems unnecessary for this story in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but that's and 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 that's why Red Nails works better as a story. Uh, you know. Um, I don't think he liked writing the cringing slave girls. I think the no, he obviously I, I, was a, a super feminist in a certain sense. Uh, yeah, and so I think um, 
you know, I, I think a lot of the theme, I think what you, you know, I, I use the word cannibalized, but, but a lot of this stuff in pieces and parts ends up in other stories. Paul, Paul, did you notice any of this uh, stuff that I'm talking about uh, in your the, reading? The philosophy? The philosophy? Yeah, just of, like, you know, sort of the, I mean, it, it is striking to me that the, the no. big, the big Lovecraftian battle is only three paragraphs. The, the the real the real politique uh, justification that Conan has for betray, betraying his host that just jumped up on me immediately. It's like, okay, so he he knows he's going to it's a red wedding situation almost. It's it's a right. red it's a red wedding situation. He knows he's going to eventually have a falling out with the chief, and in a sense, Lydia's proposal to him only just accelerates his timeline rather than actually getting Conan to do something different than he actually would have done. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Lydia was a catalyst for Conan just changing, changing up the pace of things rather than actually getting to change his mind because Conan eventually would have chopped off the guy's head, whether she was there mm-hmm. or asked him to or not. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? Yeah. I'm sorry, you guys cut out for a while, oh, sorry so I don't that. know what we're just talking about. I, I don't think it's your fault. I, I assure you, question? it was. I assure you, it was brilliant. Oh, <laughs> wow! What do you think of my brilliance there? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, now, well, well, when when you're reading this, uh, what is the roller coaster ride for you? Because for me, I mean, it's always spending time with Howard's prose. Is yeah, he's just a beautiful writer. Um, uh, the Color. I mean, the thing is, racism and color go together. But he loves red as much as he loves black. Um, yeah. And he loves white, but he loves black and red a lot more. Um, crimson <laughs> is his favorite color, you know. And lim- limnid, uh, limbed, that word limbed. is in there twice. Limbed. Yeah. Right. Um, in in the first section, um, he he's doing chur- uh, what's it called churrasco? You know that. Style of painting where chiaroscuro. 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 Okay, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I know it when I see it. It's a bunch of people sitting around a dark room with a candle, and right. everybody's face is illuminated, and their 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 hair is black, right? That's you're really really simplifying what chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro is just the 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 contrast between darkness and light in a painting. It doesn't have to be people I know, sitting around the that's what I that's what I. I'm just making sure. If I'm you typed in chiaroscuro or however you pronounce it into Google and hit images, that's what you see is a bunch of people sitting around a room, uh, with a you know light somewhere, and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful to look at, um, but that's what he does with his prose. It, it it literally is. I've never seen anybody who writes for comics, um, in prose, like he does you know lovecraft doesn't he does the opposite he 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 tells you all the things that it isn't he doesn't outline <laughs> yeah he doesn't outline the image for you generally and so the description of the god here uh is is beautiful um yeah uh, and the way it comes there's a, down there's there's a there's a poetic economy oh, to it it's just Stunning, and that lets you that lets you fill in the details. He's very good about that. Yeah, he 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 gives you he, he directs you and lets you uh, basically draw your own conclusions, literally in your head as to what this looks like. It's great. If you, it's if great. you do a, one of those um, uh, word clouds, you know, uh, to see what the biggest words are, black comes up again and again. Uh, Conan, I'm just words highlighted at random here. Conan plowed through the uh, through and was hidden from view by the twisting black figures. 
Another one. Conan had paid the price and was coming to claim her, bearing the awful token of his payment. That's awesome. <laughs> a flitting white ghost in a realm of black shadows and red flame. Beautiful. Very strong color use there. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the most vivid, the most vivid writing actually for me was when Livia was escaping when yeah. she was grabbing yeah. the horse, trying to jump onto the horse. She gets on it, and they they zoom away. Blindly, she was caught fantastic. at the flying mane, was jerked off her feet, struck the ground again. Her toes sprang high, pulled and scrambled herself up upon the horse's training back. She's actually quite a horsewoman there. I mean, she's... Yeah, that's a that's a Yakima Canut stun um, from, the, amazing, uh, from right? the old Western movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very cinematic. Super. Very cinematic. And this is where she's at her peak agency in the story, which is pretty good. She's active throughout. Um, turns out, you know, the circumstances this being a Conan story means uh, she doesn't get to save herself. She doesn't... She, She's, she's a subject... Um, in a world, you know, this is the that line that they did in the Red. So- uh, who here's read the Red Sonya comics? Hands up. I've only se- I've only seen the movie. Okay. Um, don't. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know it's terrible, but you know. <laughs> it's bad. It's a bad, bad movie. Uh, there are elements of it that are noteworthy for gifts and stuff, but it's a bad, bad movie. <laughs> So has anyone seen the the new Conan movie, the newest one? I oh, should say not not good. Um, not good. Not good. I should not. I should not bother, bother renting it. it ever. Matt, it's okay. not, Matt. Did you read it's the? It's only. It's sorry. It's only good for Jason Momoa. Momoa He's fine. Is, is the script is terrible. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just awful. Pity. Um, Jason Momoa. My um, my ex wife actually liked the new Conan better just because of the origin. Because he was, oh, you know, sure. because they had the born on a battlefield bit and yeah. his people were tough from the get go. Whereas she feels in the Schwarzenegger film, they were kind of like regular villagers. And yeah. Conan was not very barbaric at all. He he didn't have that killer instinct in him as a kid. Yeah, but as a as a as a and I'm sure this is what struck you when you watch that HBO broadcast, right, is it's so good. The setup. I mean, it's storytelling writing. No, was that I was, Oliver Stone I was who wrote that? Fuck, that's good writing because yeah, everything yeah, yeah. pays I, off. I thought it was great. I thought it was great, uh, but she, you know, she didn't feel the beginning reflected, you know, the pulp Conan's. No, it, uh, it, roots. Uh, but that's the thing in, in the in the Conan stories. We never see another Sumerian, right? He is uh, he is our viewpoint character. For everything, we are him in a certain sense, and so anytime they in the comics to me when they went to uh, Samaria, um, it was just a mistake. Anytime you show another Samarian, just a big big mistake. Because so what you're saying is in the books, in the pulp stories, he pretty much made up the whole thing about Samaria. Yeah, there's to a make poem, himself... right, Mark? You, you it's called Samaria. <laughs> yeah, the... Yeah, the the poem about Samaria is sort of um, it's gloomy land. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a gloomy place, and and Howard uses him to represent as you know, I am I am Conan, you know, uh, a Sumerian. I am Conan from the darkness, you know, uh, and, and if you if you Samaria is depression, of, basically, it's a land of melancholia, right? And, and if you think of and if you think of Conan, he, he, we don't need that. No, 
we don't need any of that with him. You he know, tells he, us everything he, he, we need to know about his his. He, when he walks into the city of thieves, uh, Z- Zamora in Tower of the Elephant, we we get you know we get everything we need to know. It's it's a it's not quite in media res, but it's the same. You know, at the at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. We know we know who Indiana Jones is within the first five minutes of the movie. Uh, it, pick a Sergio Leone movie with uh, with Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. We don't need to know anything else about the man with no name except what he does after he gets into town. That's, right. That's the important part. Yeah, you in, know. In, in, until Conan becomes King Aquilone, I mean, he's the walking the earth trope embodied. He's walking the earth, yeah. having adventures, getting into trouble, romances, losing women, finding women. And I mean, his origin is beside the point that to show it is almost diminishing the idea that he's this eternal wanderer going around having adventures. It's, as soon as you yeah. as soon as you show Conan's parents getting murdered by a sorcerer, you are we are we are out of Howard Land and in the weeds. <laughs> I mean, that's it, it, it works right so there. well. I mean, what what's so amazing about that first film is that it it takes it plucks from here and there all sorts of different stuff and it weaves its own spell with the Nietzschean Overman stuff that that is going on in there that uh, is not actually racist, uh, although it is often penned as such. Yeah. Um, and the and the and the Kurosawa uh, motifs, sure. which uh, Milius was into, I think the movie works because it runs parallel to a lot of things that Howard talks about. Mm-hmm. It's a par- it's a parallel track, and, it, and, uh, and, it's a, and it, it is a story. Not you know the, all this Thulsa Doom stuff they do in the comics. I, I don't care anything about. I do love the way they do Thulsa Doom in the film, and because it's a single story. Right. If you were doing a TV show, like if you ever saw Conan and the Adventures, oh my God, terrible show. <laughs> I, I want to want I want to like this show, but honestly, terrible. Um, yeah. Where you know it's it's the villain of the week. He's the you know he's the the he's he's every Spider-Man villain who, or every you know he's the Joker. He's not. That's not how Conan works, right? He, he, right. There's no. But in a single one-off film. It's terrific. I, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with you. I mean, in terms of, uh, it, you know, like, uh, like uh, Appendix Sin for D and D. You know, I saw the Conan movie before I read the books, and when I saw it, based on the stories by Robert E. Howard, and remembered, oh, I'd seen that in my Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> I it, it became a, it became a sudden moral imperative that I need to read this, and so. My first Conan story was uh, was my first Conan book was Conan the Usurper with the Frazetta cover of the giant snake coming through his legs while he's chained. Mm. Oh yes, and and that's the book that contains Beyond the Black River. Mm-hmm. Now it also contains the Treasure of Tranicos, which is the Black Stranger rewritten. But um, it, Beyond the Black River was my introduction <laughs> to literary Conan, and so you know. If that's uh, if that's your introduction to the guy, holy smoke, man! Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's 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 a really and and then of course you go back to the first uh, book and and in that is Tower of the Elephant. But uh, uh, I'm really glad that we've got the Delray editions now that have the stuff in them 
minus the DeCamp and the Carter mm-hmm. and the Bjorn Nyberg stuff. Yeah, seeing seeing um, for actually how it is, not the the pastiche that I, uh, honestly dilutes the 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 amazingness. I read a lot of uh, not a lot. I read some of those, and I I just found like I thought I thought the Curse of the Monolith. Who's that by? Um, uh, with the with the magnetic stone, Conan goes off to. Oh, that's China. Uh, that's Carter. Yeah, so yeah. I thought that was really cool, and then I realized, yeah, it's a cool idea, but it's not a Conan story. Right, and that's the, and that's the problem is even even at the age of thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, I'm reading these stories, and and I and it, and it says Robert E. Howard, Lynn, Lynn Carter, L. Sprague de Camp, and I'm reading that and going, yeah, this isn't as good. No. You know, I mean, you, you don't have to be a, a scholar no, to read those. It. That's the amazing part, right? You could absolutely feel it. You could totally feel it. It was like someone didn't put salt in the chicken noodle soup, man. It's like, well, what are you, <laughs> what, what are you doing to me here? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's. I'm glad that we've got the originals and uh, and and you know, this was. I, I really appreciate the, this thoughtful discussion. Most people don't get this far into Veil of the Lost Women. And, and look at these themes. And so this was, I'm really glad that we did this. I, um, I was prepared to good naturedly defend Howard's honor. And I feel instead, uh, like I need to go back through and reread, uh, Vale again and, 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 and read it more closely, which is, uh, uh, a, a wonderful thing, uh, to have, have to do, you know? So mm-hmm. that's, uh, I, I think uh, I think this was a really productive discussion um, in that re- in that re- in that respect. Glad you, glad you appreciated it, uh, Matt. You got any last thoughts? I know we lost you for a little while there. Yeah, no, um, I'm I'm good. Uh, I don't know. I don't I know how I, I, uh, I in my mind you are my Robert E. Howard go-to guy. Yeah, well, you know, I thought so too because like somebody asked me to talk about. Uh, Robert E. Howard or Conan, and I'm like, okay, here's one of the few subjects uh, in the world that maybe I can contribute something to. Then I saw that Mark Finn was part of the podcast, and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll be standing in the corner <laughs> and taking this. <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought of you first, and then uh, I saw, I think I think it was a Mark Finn tweet or something, and or somebody was talking about a Mark Finn tweet, and I thought, I've heard of this guy. He might he might know something about Robert E. Howard. We'll see how it goes. Well, I, I really appreciate you guys inviting me to the podcast. This was a lot of fun, and uh, and 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 well, thanks very much. Again. I'm, I'm very happy to pick another here. story, and and uh, I'm not I'm not obsessed with uh, it being Conan either. Uh, uh, in fact, um, Matt, have you been on any of the other? I know you've been on a lot of Robert E. Howard ones, at least a couple. Um, was were the other ones Conan's? Um, we were on a we, Solomon Kane, I think. We did a Solomon Kane one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And beyond that, I honestly can't remember. Okay, it's uh, been a while. I can't remember. Yeah, it has. It has. It's been years. And Paul, uh, uh, what about you? What What was the? Have you been on a Robert E. Howard one? Because it has been a while since this, I did one. Yeah, this is the first Howard E. Howard one of yours I I've ever done. I, I and so, so when you said let's do Robert Howard, I said sure. Yeah, I guess I haven't done. I'm, it I'm a real champion for the underdog stories like like this because um, I don't know going in with low expectations and then finding that they're not. 
I, I guess in comparison to other stores, but I actually like this better than some. I, I can't remember which ones I'm thinking of right now, but it's it's not, you know, Red Nails, and it's not... Um, uh, and I have some sympathy for... Uh, what's the... Um, Frost Giant's Daughter? But yeah. honestly, mm-hmm. it's not... It's too short. It's just... It's sort of a vignette to me, and it uh, it's beautiful. Um, but it's been adapted so many times as comics. I mean, there's at least three or four times it's been done, uh, I sort of know it backward and forward, and this one is not like that at all. Well, this this is my challenge to you. If you if you guys want to do this again, mm-hmm. I would be more than happy to. Uh, I'll give you, and I'll even I'll even give you three possibilities. Right. Uh, the Black Stone, yeah, which is considered story. Howard's, which is considered Howard's best Cthulhu mythos story. Uh, Worms of the Earth, which is considered one of Howard's best stories. Period. Uh, or any of Howard's humor work, either the funny boxing or the funny Western stories. Right. I was thinking that Sa- first Breckenridge Austin story Rebecca is pretty darn good. It's so funny. So I would be more than willing to come in and, and just chop that up with you guys and sift through it. Uh, most of the work that I did uh, that I contributed to Howard's scholarship is in the realm of the funny Howard Westerns and, 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 and boxing stories. And so I can speak to that, uh, with regard to Howard's writing style. So let's, uh, let's go through the list of things that are in the public domain so I can, uh, get a chance of getting an audiobook if I can't get an official one. And then, uh, that's cool. Thank you so much. This has been the SFF audio podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Very genteel <laughs> show. Uh, so I, apolo- I apologize if I don't remember you. No, that's no problem. I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you came to Worldcon and you probably came to some of the panels. And oh, I did. I saw a couple of your panels and awesome. I enjoyed your book very much. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Paul, uh, he uh, Mark wrote a bio of uh, Robert E. Howard called Blood and Thunder, right? Yes, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard. I'm looking forward to oh, nice. hearing your insights because I've been doing Robert E. Howard with Matt. And I guess, I, I don't know, Paul, have you done any Robert E. Howard's shows? With you? I don't think so. Actually. Yeah, it's sort of sporadic. It's not like the Lovecraft that comes up every couple, couple of weeks, it seems like. Well. Or the Philip K. Dick. Or the Philip K. Dick that comes up every week or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what is it about Dick that it comes up every week? I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, he wrote a ton. He wrote a ton, and everyone has one. All the men have one. Um, sure. So there's that. I think everybody's had a little Dick in their lives, at least once. <laughs> you, need, you, uh, you need a lot of Dick in your life. Male, uh, <laughs> female, whatever you like. I'm, uh, I'm a man in the high castle man myself. That's a good book. Yeah, so I, 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 I think it's my favorite of all of them, just because of the, um, I, I just, I, I think it's the most balanced. Um, well, it's incredibly well written. Um, yeah, he lucked out yeah. in a number of ways. I, I, I think he's a gambler, and oftentimes he gambles badly. Um, but even in that bad gamble, you enjoy stuff. You, yes, you can occasionally enjoy a train wreck. Yep. Uh, it, you know, especially if it's like a clown car, 
where the ostriches are tumbling out and the clowns are on fire. You're like, yeah, nope. this sucks, but this is kind of cool too. Yep. That's yeah. True. That's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a very badly written Philip K. Dick book. Uh, yes, I agree. Well, the clowns have to be androids, right? And then yeah, well, yeah, they yeah. To realize yeah, that they're no, yeah, they totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. For your lifespan, you know. That's right. You got it. Although uh, that's a different book um, or movie. I, I don't think that's in the book. It's uh, not in the book. Do I stream of Electric Sheep? Um, how, how much time has everybody got? Because I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, not have enough time for us. I have an I have an hour and fifty three minutes. I've oh, actually perfect. got back to I've actually got back to back podcasts stacked okay. up. So good. Well, well, I'm glad we got you uh, uh, with your voice first, so we can wear your voice out before the other show takes it. <laughs> uh, and Matt, how are you? For time? yeah, I've I've got about the same because I oh, have perfect. to uh, get ready for work later. All right. Um, shall we get started? Uh, whenever you guys are ready. Paul, you ready? I am ready. All right. I think. Oh, is uh, yeah. is my volume okay? You're am perfect. Loud? Am I too Sound loud? Okay. is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. Everybody's clear. I I did a Skype test earlier and came off very loud, so I've backed off of my mic just a little bit. But if I need to adjust, it sounds please perfect. Let me know. There's nothing Great. wrong with it at all, and I don't even hear Paul's squeaky chair. So we're perfect. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> No, we don't hear it, Paul. That's the good news. I know, I know, but you had to mention it. I have to mention it, otherwise you get get away scot free. Um, all right, so I've got the Wikipedia entry up. Uh, I made some highlights and notes on the actual thing. Everybody uh, get a chance to look at the comic book adaptation. Yeah. Did in fact, yeah, uh, read it just last night and uh, re-familiarized myself with the story. Uh, as well as my comments on it uh, in Blood and Thunder. Perfect. So uh, I'm 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 ready to go. All right. Uh, the PDF. I don't think I sent that to everybody, but it's on my website. It's public domain in Canada. Um, should I send it to you just in case uh, you want to compare it to the version that's published in uh, Conan the Sumerian or whatever? I'm good. Okay. No, I, I'm 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 fine. Yeah. All right, Matt. No, I'm fine. I have uh, I have a like uh, fantasy masterworks Ooh, right next to me. That sounds with good. The story in it. All right. All right. Um, let's get started then. My recorder is working perfectly so far. That's a good thing. Here we go. Oh, uh, the format. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna say hi. I'm Jesse. Paul's gonna say. Hi, he's Paul. Matt's going to say hi, I'm Matt, or whatever he likes. Um, and then, Mark, you come in uh, at the end and give your name. Very good. And then we... we wait, yep. wait, what's my line again? Uh, your line is your name, and uh, you can use your first name, last name, I'm, website, whatever. Um, Twitter handle, whatever you like. You Let got it? Get a pen. Yeah, same, same with you, uh, okay. Mark. Okay. All right, here we go. Bring the mic a little closer. Take a sip of tea. It's very manly tea, don't worry. 